Good morning, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Let's get things started with five things to know for this Thursday, September 14th. In just hours, Speaker Kevin McCarthy is expected to meet behind closed doors with House Republicans, including the three committee chairmen who've been tapped to lead the impeachment inquiry into President Biden. New this morning, President Biden talks for the first time about the probe, saying Republicans want to impeach him because they want to shut down the government. But he says... He's got a job to do. 18 hours from now, auto workers in Detroit could strike against the big three. The union president says we're likely going to have to take action. He's talking about a targeted strike. And new details on the capture of the escape killer in Pennsylvania. He survived for days on just watermelon and stream water. He's planning to escape to Canada. We are also keeping a very close eye on Hurricane Lee as new watches are issued for coastal New England. CNN This Morning starts right now. I know you're counting. How many days away are we from a potential shutdown? From a shutdown? You're going to put me on the spot like you're this? You're just always, am, ca- like, am I right? Uh, 17, 16, 17? 16, 16, 16. He's got a lot of experience the shutdown, up there. shutdown, impeachment inquiry, Mitt Romney. Wow, wow. Do we have a lot to talk about as it relates to the former That's presidential so right. candidate and current Republican senator. Talk about candid. Yeah. We're going to get into all of that. We're glad you're with us. Here's where we start this morning. A government shutdown, looming House Republicans. Instead of focusing the, on their impeachment inquiry, of President Biden just a couple hours from now. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is set to meet with Republican lawmakers. This will happen behind doors as they plot their next steps, even though some Republicans have admitted there doesn't seem to be any hard evidence at this point that the president did anything illegal regarding his son. Meanwhile, President Biden is moving on, set to give a speech about the economy today. Reporters tried to ask him about this impeachment inquiry yesterday. Here's what he said. You'll notice there was no response there, hasn't been wanting to weigh in publicly, but later off camera at a fundraiser where he is often a little bit more candid, President Biden told supporters, quote, I get up every day not focused on impeachment. I've got a job to do. I don't know quite why, but they, Republicans, just knew they wanted to impeach me. Now, best as I can tell, They want to impeach me because they want to shut down the government. Also, as we were discussing, Senator Mitt Romney blasted what he called the Trump wing of the GOP after announcing he would not seek re-election. Romney was the only Republican senator to vote to convict Donald Trump in both of his impeachment trials. He says there doesn't appear to be a case against Biden in his inquiry. Well, there's no question but that the Republican Party today is is in the shadow of Donald Trump. Uh, He is the leader of the greatest portion of the Republican Party. Uh, Look, I represent a small wing of the party, if you will. I call it the wise wing of the Republican Party. My wing of the party talks about policy and about issues that will make a difference to the lives of the American people. The uh, Trump wing of the party uh, talks about resentments of various kinds and getting even and, and settling scores. We have team coverage of the split screen that's really going to define the next 14 months heading into the 2024 election. CNN White House correspondent Arlette Sines is standing by on the North Lawn of the White House. And CNN congressional correspondent Lauren Fox is live in the Capitol. Lauren, this meeting, I think everybody's been pushing toward it between Speaker McCarthy and Republicans behind closed doors. What's the expectation here? Yeah, the expectation, Phil, is that this is about trying to unify the Republican Party around the announcement that Kevin McCarthy made on Tuesday. There are some Republican members who still 
are not thinking that this was the best idea to unlaunch, to launch this impeachment inquiry. You also are starting to see from Republicans that they are coalescing around what the next steps should be. But a lot of decisions have yet to be made in how to pursue this impeachment inquiry. The three chairmen that have been tasked with leading this, they've been working together for months, but they still have questions about what witnesses they might want to hear from, when and if to issue subpoenas for some of those high-profile witnesses, someone like Hunter Biden, perhaps. Those are discussions that are still very much ongoing. And while their teams have been talking for months, you can expect that those conversations have been ramping up. I talked to Jim Jordan yesterday as he left the Republican Senate lunch, and I asked him specifically, how long is this going to go? What is your timeline? And he declined to give one. He said, right now, the plan is just to keep going. He also told me that he had just signed three subpoenas yesterday when we pushed him on who those subpoenas were going to. He said, we were just going to have to wait and find out. But that gives you a sense, Phil, that this is very much moving in is an action, just as it has been for several months now, only now under the umbrella of an impeachment inquiry. Can we talk also about Mitt Romney and the fact that not only is he not going to run again, but he chose to say pretty much everything, Lauren. And he is someone who, through his actions and his votes, has stood up against many in his party for what he thinks is right. But I was just so struck with what he said yesterday. What do the American people need to know as they wake up this morning? Yeah, Mitt Romney not running for re-election, but making it clear what he thinks the direction of the country should be. He was going after everyone, Republicans in his party, who he say he says are too closely aligned with the former president, as well as Joe Biden. Here's what he said about the presidential election. I think it would be a great thing if both President Biden and former President Trump were to stand aside and let their respective party pick someone in the next generation. Uh, President Trump, excuse me, President Biden, when he was running, said he was a transitional figure to the next generation. Well, time to transition. And he wasted no time criticizing some Republican senators who he's going to have to serve with over the next year. Republican Senate lunches happen multiple times a week. There's going to be one today. But he went after people like J.D. Vance, Josh Hawley, Ted Cruz, saying that, you know, Josh Hawley was one of the smartest people he knew in the Senate. And Ted Cruz was a close second. But he argued they knew better than some of the arguments that they make publicly when it comes to the Constitution. Really, really fascinating way to sort of announce that you're retiring mm-hmm. from the Senate, given the fact that he really unveiled and pulled back the curtain on what's transpired over his time. Yeah, Happy? and interesting, too, he said he's not leaving the party and he's not going to sit on the sidelines or on the beach, I think he said. So it's going to be really interesting to watch when he's not in the Senate. How does he influence the future of the Republican Party? Lauren, thank you. Phil. Thanks, Poppy. We're going to take you just down the road of Pennsylvania Avenue from a very chaotic Capitol building to a very different scene altogether. White House officials preparing for what they're calling the next chapter in Bidenomics. President Biden is traveling to Maryland today to deliver what's being called a major economic address, contrasting his vision with Republicans, as White House officials call it, trickle-down economic plan, which his administration says has, quote, failed working families every time. But CNN polling data shows 58% of Americans feel Biden has made the economic conditions worse. CNN's Arlette Signs is live for us at the White House with more. Uh, I, this split screen is so striking. It's also been kind of defining for this White House for the entirety of their time uh, in the West Wing. What do we expect today from these remarks from the president? 
Yeah, Phil, President Biden will be heading out to Maryland to try to enter into this new phase of selling his economic vision to the American people, which remains very weary about the state of the economy. Now, the White House says what they will be doing today is trying to draw more of an explicit contrast with Republican policies. You often hear President Biden talk about Bidenomics. Well, today he will be trying to contrast that against Maganomics. This is an effort to try to sell the president's vision a bit more to the American people. Now, uh, one of the president's top advisors, Anita Dunn, wrote a memo that was released this morning uh, highlighting some of the facts that the president will be leaning into. He will be drawing from the Republican Study Committee's budget released over the summer uh, to argue that Republicans want to raise taxes for wealthy Americans and also make cuts to Medicare and Social Security. That's something we've often heard President Biden talk about out on the campaign trail. And this all comes as there has been these internal debates and really a budget standoff up on Capitol Hill as that September 30th uh, government shutdown deadline looms. But the really big question is whether Biden can actually move the needle with Americans' perceptions on the economy. As you mentioned, recent polling has shown that the majority of Americans believe the president's economic policies have worsened economic conditions for them. Even as there are some bright spots in the economy, the people still just aren't feeling this at home. The White House has acknowledged it will take time for a lot of this to settle in, but they are trying to ramp up that message especially as that 2024 election looms. All right, Arlette signs for us. The correlation between landscaping and live shots on the North Lawn never <laughs> fails to impress Arlette. <laughs> Great work as always, Poppy. I have never personally experienced that, but I know all of you have, and it makes your job a little bit more difficult. Arlette always handles it so gracefully. All right. To world news. In day two of North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un's visit to Russia, South Korea is warning that it looks like he is still pursuing, quote, some kind of military deal. And we'll have the latest forecast on Hurricane Lee. Meteorologist Derek Van Dam will break down where New England could see a dangerous storm surge starting tomorrow. Stay with us. Hurricane and tropical storm watches in effect this morning for coastal New England. This is Hurricane Lee, now a Category 2 storm, threatens that region and parts of Canada over the next several days. Our meteorologist, Eric Van Dam, keeping a very close eye on it. I think here in Canada, it's a little bit surprising. Are they in for it? Yeah, you know, that Bay of Fundy, that's an area where we have some of the largest tidal swings in the world, and they could get a direct impact from this storm. But the storm is going to be so large that we'll feel impacts across the eastern sections of New England, no doubt. You've got another 36 hours to prepare your property, let's say for Cape Cod into Portland, all the way towards the border of the U.S. and Canada. This storm system is massive. We talked about how it is ballooning in size. It literally covers 850 miles in terms of that cloud shields. That's the same as traveling from Miami to our nation's capital. Still a category two right now. And I want to emphasize that the impacts from this storm will be felt well outside of that official forecast cone, which you see highlighted with those two white lines. Uh, the tropical storm force winds as it stands actually uh, travel out about 300 miles from the center. So we're going to feel the impacts of those tropical storm force winds Friday night into Saturday across, let's say, coast Massachusetts into coastal areas of Maine as well. Here's a look at the latest tropical storm watches and hurricane watches. No warnings just yet. We still have another uh, 48 to 72 hours before this system makes landfall. Uh, but I want to focus in on Cape Cod. Two to four feet, the official storm surge forecast. That's because the winds on the backside of the system will push in some of that water from the Bay of Maine. And that is going to bring uh, that potential for storm surge into that area 
very inundated region. This has seen above average rainfall this summer, so the potential exists for flash flooding across the region and power outages as well. Okay, thanks for keeping an eye on it, Derek. Sure thing, Bobby. Well, lawmakers have two weeks, 16 days, to act to prevent a government shutdown. One plan would cut funding to Ukraine. Next, we'll speak to a former general who just penned a letter to lawmakers urging them to continue supporting that war-torn country. Also, did the turf Aaron Rodgers played on contribute to his season-ending injury? You're going to hear from the NFL commissioner and players as the league debates real versus artificial grass. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number Smart Beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number Smart Beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life. Lately, we have been paying attention to a very different virus, bird flu, which is caused by the H5N1 virus. If you start to hear that it's circulating in pigs... That would be a concern. That means I would go from sleeping with one eye open to one and a half eyes open. Yeah, that would make me very concerned. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. We have this just in to CNN. The office of South Korea's president says, quote, the kinds of weapons provided by North Korea are being used by Russia in Ukraine. This comes as North Korean leader Kim Jong-un is in Russia for a second very consequential day of meetings. Uh, CNN's Paula Hancock is live for us in Seoul. And Paula, we know that there was a meeting yesterday, a very lengthy uh, face-to-face between President Putin and, and Kim Jong-un. What do we expect today? What happens going forward? Well, Phil, we know that uh, that Kim Jong-un is still in Russia, that he has got an extensive schedule. He's going off to uh, a factory that's uh, making uh, military and civilian products, according to Vladimir Putin. He's going to have a demonstration uh, by the Russian military as well, although we haven't seen any kind of footage or indication of what that would look like. Uh, but we are hearing from the South Korean side, as you say, that the unification minister saying that uh, they're very concerned, that they appear uh, to be pursuing some kind of military deal. And then the presidential office coming out with uh, this uh, line that they believe that certain kinds of weapons that North Korea has given to Russia have already been used in Ukraine on the battlefield, saying that we've long confirmed that certain kinds of weapons have been used uh, in the battlefield. So certainly this is uh, of concern. We've heard from uh, the Biden administration before that they believe North Korea had already given uh, infantry rockets and missiles to the Russian mercenary group Wagner last year. But this goes one step further. The South Korean presidential office saying they believe those weapons are already 
on the ground and have been used. We're also hearing elsewhere in the region from Japan, uh, the new foreign minister saying she's very concerned and worried about what exactly this kind of deal would mean for any kind of sanctions, UN Security uh, Council resolutions, for example. Very problematic, though, of course, because Russia and China are uh, Security Council members and uh, they certainly have the veto for any new sanctions. So it is difficult, we're hearing from many in the region, how to uh, prevent or deter this kind of deal. Phil? Yeah, as the world continues to wait for another nuclear test from North Korea, Paul Hickox, appreciate it. Thank you. Two weeks, that is how much time House Republicans have to keep the government from shutting down. Now they are considering shelving a significant defense bill and focusing instead on approving a short-term stopgap bill. To do that, Speaker McCarthy says he intends to end assistance to Ukraine, all while the White House is requesting $24 billion in additional aid in this legislation. Now two former generals are imploring House Republicans to put politics aside and approve the aid They wrote a letter that reads in part, quote, now is not the time to allow partisan politics to get in the way of supporting an ally that is fighting for freedom as well as their own existence. Ukrainians need our help and they needed it yesterday. Ukraine's victory in the war is a strategic is in America's strategic interest. And one of those retired generals who decided it was so critical to write that letter is with us now. Former NATO Supreme Allied Commander, retired General Philip Breedlove. We really appreciate your time this morning. Did you feel that you needed to write this letter, not only because of what is happening in Washington in these efforts to to strip this right now, but because of the sentiment of the majority of American people who do not at this point um, support more new funding? Well, first of all, good morning and thank you for having me on your show. The timing is important Uh, as we approach the presidential elections, uh, you know, now what is happening is uh, politics is having much more influence on what we are doing and what we should be doing for Ukraine. And part of our letter was to urge that we set aside those sort of current politics and refocus on the strategic nature of what's happening in Ukraine. And there is so much economically that Ukraine affects us here in America and the world. There's so much in the manner of food and grain that Ukraine affects in the world. And frankly, I think we need to remember that we need to stand up against Mr. Putin's illegal, immoral war that he's been carrying on for almost nine years now in Ukraine. General, after 18 months, do you understand why some Americans are saying, look, we get it, we understand the strategic nature of this, but there are a lot of concerns at home as well. We'd prefer uh, domestic funding to be focused on? There's no doubt that there is a competition for these scarce resources. I personally think America is big enough to do both. This is not an if uh, or. It is yes and let's move forward. And so um, I think that, you know, if we look at what we're giving, it is a lot. But if you look at a, on a per GDP basis, 11 nations in NATO are giving more than America is. And so we are doing the right thing. We need to be thankful to our taxpayers and our lawmakers, but I think there's more we should do. Just if you could respond to the reporting that we just had from our um, Paula Hancock in Seoul, that it is the belief of the South Korean president's office that North Korea 
Korean weapons are already on the ground in some uh, capacity in, in Ukraine. What, what does that mean to you if that is indeed the case? Well, first and foremost, Mr. Putin's army and his logistics systems are failing him on the ground in Ukraine. Um, and what we see is that Mr. Putin's war of intimidation and his war of words, or in a military parlance, his deterrence is working. So he's failing militarily, but his deterrence is working. What you see with North Korea is much the same as I think overtures to China and others, Iran, and that is to supply the weapons that Mr. Putin has not been able to supply to his troops. General, given the scale of the support up to this point and the fact that Vladimir Putin is continuing to find resources despite the massive sanctions regime that has been put into place by Western allies, do you feel the United States and its allies need to do more in terms of weapon systems, the, the capacity and capability? Uh, so this doesn't end up being multi-year, never-ending type of fight. I absolutely do. You know that our senior-most leaders have made a couple of promises uh, uh, consistently through this war. We say we're going to be with them as long as it takes, and we say that we're going to give them everything they need. Uh, and we have done a lot. Again, we need to be thankful, but we have not... I think, fulfill those promises. We have not given them everything they need. If our forces were on the ground fighting in Ukraine, we would be doing it under battlefield air superiority. We have not provided Ukraine the ability to establish battlefield air superiority, and their troops are suffering because of it. We would never go to war without our long-range artillery. And we have, how far are we into this war now? And Ukraine still does not have so, uh, long-range artillery. Yeah. So then is it your assessment that had the United States um, provided to Ukraine up front in the first couple of months, what we've now, what the U.S. has now provided to Ukraine, Ukraine could have prevailed by this point? Uh, I, I don't want to venture that that sort of guess. It wouldn't be scientific, and I, doesn't, I don't think it helps your, your viewers. What I do know is that Ukraine, we have been giving them less than what they need when it comes to technology and capability, and they have strategically defeated Russia on the north side of Kyiv. They've strategically defeated Russia on the north and northwest side of Kharkiv, and they're in the middle of an operational defeat of Russia in the south. I just would say that had we given them everything they needed, like we promised them, they would probably be much further along into liberating their country. Retired General Philip Breedlove, thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you. Well, tonight at midnight, thousands of members of the United Auto Workers Union could walk off the job. The union just laid out a strike plan against the big three automakers. We're going to take you live to Detroit outside of General Motors headquarters. We also have big takeaways from yesterday's closed door meeting with lawmakers and tech leaders on artificial intelligence. I think something good will come of this. this I think this, this meeting may go on history as being very important for the future of civilization. They nickel and dime our members every day. They price gouge the American consumer, and they squeeze the U.S. taxpayer for every dime they can get. The big three can afford to immediately give us our fair share. 
So that's the president of the United Auto Workers Union. And this morning, the countdown is on for the high-stakes contract negotiations between the UAW and Detroit's big three automakers. They only have until 11.59 p.m. tonight to reach an agreement or thousands of workers could walk off the job. But talks are not going well. And now the union president is announcing plans for a targeted strike at a limited number of plants that could grind auto production at those plants to a halt. Vanessa Yurkevich joins us live again this morning in Detroit outside of General Motors headquarters. He was so candid in that uh, sort of Facebook talk that you told us was coming yesterday and now a targeted strike. What does that actually mean? Yeah, less than 24 hours. There is still time to reach a deal, but it is not looking good. President Fain last night last night laying out this unique targeted strike approach, something we haven't seen the United Auto Workers do since the late 1990s. Essentially, the national union would call on select local unions at various plants at various times over various days and ask them only those unions to go out on strike, leaving others working at the plants. Part of this is to keep the company guessing, and part of this is to conserve the strike fund for work. But this could come at some risk because those workers that are still left working at the plants, they're down under a contract and the companies do not have to pay those workers. Also, in terms of supply, if you just shut down a couple plants across the country, that could have an impact on the supply chain. One economist saying that it's essentially like shutting down all production. We know that the three automakers do not have as much inventory as they did in 2019. So I want you to listen to Sean Fain, who discussed the state of negotiations, and then also listen to Jim Farley, the CEO of Ford, who was visibly upset about where they are in the state of negotiations. We're still very far apart on our key priorities. From job security to ending tears, from cost of living allowance to wage increases, we do not yet have offers on the table that reflect the sacrifice and contributions our members have made to these companies. To win, we're likely going to have to take action. On August 29th, we made our first offer almost two weeks ago to the UAW. We've made three offers since then, and we've had no genuine counteroffer on any of those. Now, Jim Farley and Bill Ford said that they showed up to union headquarters yesterday to present that fourth offer. They said Sean Fain was not there. Jim Farley saying that he is optimistic that there could be a deal, but he doesn't feel like negotiations are moving in the right direction. Big question, guys, is is there going to be enough in terms of negotiations from these companies to please the union despite record wage increase offers, 17.5% to 20%? Is it going to be enough? And is it going to be in time for the deadline, guys? And so notable that the CEO Ford and the chair went there in person with this offer saying it's tough to negotiate when there's no one to negotiate with. That's their stance at this point. Vanessa, great reporting. Thank you, Bill. Well, Aaron Rodgers is speaking out after suffering a season-ending Achilles injury during the first drive of the first game of the season. In an Instagram post, he says he will, quote, rise again and that he's proud of his new team for taking home the win. Rodgers, you'll recall, was sacked during that first drive in just his fourth snap in his debut with the New York Jets. That injury is now reigniting the debate on real grass versus artificial turf on fields. Here's what Jets coach Robert Sala 
said when he was asked if the new field at MetLife Stadium played a role in Rodgers' injury. You know, if it was a non-contact injury, uh, I think I think that'd be something to, to discuss, obviously. But uh, it was, that was kind of a forcible, uh, I think that was trauma-induced. Uh, I do know the players prefer grass, and, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot invested in those young men. Andy Scholes joins me now, and Andy, the NFL commissioner is weighing into this is a time-old debate at this point. Real grass is the answer, but where do things stand? Well, yeah, you know, Phil, as soon as the injury happened to Rodgers, you know, many started blaming that turf there at MetLife Stadium. The NFLPA Executive Director Lloyd Howe, he issued a statement yesterday calling for all teams to move to grass playing surfaces. Now, he said, quote, it's the easiest decision to make, adding, you know, the players overwhelmingly prefer it, and the data is clear that grass is simply safer than artificial turf. But Commissioner Roger Goodell, while on ESPN's first take yesterday, he pushed back on that, saying they aren't convinced that the turf is more dangerous to play on. What we want to go is on science. We want to go on what's the best from an injury standpoint to prevent the injuries, to give our players the best, best possible surface to play on. And that's, that can't be done by my feeling of looking at a particular injury. It's got to be done with a real process and uh, to look at it with medical experts, look at it with engineers, look at it with people on the cleats, look at it on every aspect of what can go into that injury. Now, 17 of the 32 teams use artificial turf at home. And according to data released by the NFLPA, non-contact injuries occurred at a higher rate on turf compared to grass during the 2022 regular season. And if you ask quarterback Patrick Mahomes, he's one of many players that definitely prefers grass. I think it's pretty simple. The numbers say that grass is healthier for the players, and so I want to play on the best surface that will keep me healthy. Now, two-time Super Bowl champ Eli Manning, meanwhile, he played his home games there at MetLife Stadium and said, well, the turf never bothered him. You know, I, I, I was never worried about the turf. I never got injured because of, of turf. Played, you know, played in, in that stadium, in, in the old stadium, played in MetLife. So uh, I, I, I honestly believe that the turf had no, nothing to do with that injury. I think it was just unfortunate. Uh, now, the NFLPA acknowledged the investment it would take to change all the stadiums to grass, but pointed out the fact that all those NFL stadiums hosting the World Cup in 2026 are switching to grass for the tournament. So, Phil, the NFLPA says, you know, if they'll do that for soccer, switch to grass, why won't they do it for their own players? That's a good point. Andy Schultz, appreciate it, my friend. Thank you. All right. Well, Utah Senator Mitt Romney says he will not run for re-election because he would be in his mid-80s in his next term. So with President Biden, we'll discuss this in the state of the 2024 race coming up with former 2020 presidential candidate Andrew Yang. He's in the studio now. We're going to talk to him. Stay with us. At the end of another term, I'd be in my mid-80s. Frankly, it's time for a new generation of leaders. They're the ones that need to make the decisions that will shape the world they will be living in. That is Senator Mitt Romney announcing he will not seek re-election, citing his age as one of those factors. He also said this about the 2024 presidential race. I think it would be a great thing if both President Biden and former President Trump 
were to stand aside and let their respective party pick someone in the next generation. Uh, President Trump, excuse me, President Biden, when he was running, said he was a transitional figure to the next generation. Well, time to transition. And according to an excerpt of Romney's upcoming biography by McKay Coppins, in April, Romney approached Democratic Senator Joe Manchin about building a new political party. Quote, instead of putting forward its own doomed candidate in 2024, Romney argued their party should gather a contingent of like-minded donors and pledge support to the candidate who came the closest to aligning with its agenda. We'd say this party is going to endorse whichever party's nominee isn't stupid. Joining us now is former 2020 presidential candidate Andrew Yang. He launched a new third party in 2021 called Forward after leaving the Democratic Party. And he's the author of the new fiction book, The Last Election. We'll get to the book in a minute. But, but to that point, you know, Romney's differentiating. He's, he hasn't pursued this path. But his idea was not to start a whole new party entirely. He seemed to be endorsing whichever candidate isn't stupid, which seems to be a decent plan. I guess, low yeah, bar. I was curious um, what he was going to name it, the not stupid party. <laughs> <laughs> but you went a different route in terms of new party altogether. Yes. Is it because you don't think the Democratic candidate in this race, the current president, you think he's too old? Do you think he can't be the nominee? He shouldn't be the nominee? Shouldn't be the president? Uh, at this point, about half of Americans say we're independents. Two-thirds want a new political alternative. More than two-thirds of young people don't subscribe to either party. So the question is, how are we going to build a system that's actually representative and, and will stand the test of time? Uh, the forward party uh, is reaching across, I, I was going to say across the aisle, but for a lot of Americans, the left-right ideological divide isn't something they live every day. And I, I experienced that when I was on the trail running for president. There are people on the right and the left who can find common ground on a lot of the biggest issues. Can you help us understand then why it never works? Why oh, a third-party bid in this country has just never prevails? Yeah, I'd love to, Poppy. Um, so first, when people think third-party, they immediately go to the presidential um, because Ross Perot, Ralph Nader, yeah. that sort of thing. So Forward is focusing on the half a million locally elected uh, offices around the country. We have several dozen uh, mayors, district attorneys, city commissioners who've aligned with Forward because they don't want to play the ideological back and forth. They're like, look, I'm just trying to get things done for my community. I'm not on team blue or team red. I'm on team constituent or, or the, the office that people elected me for. I think that theoretically, most people would say that that makes a ton of sense. We, we like this idea. But I think the hard part is to Poppy's point, like actually putting the theory into practice. You, you know, you had some pushback recently from somebody who used to work for the parties. The former national press secretary said the mere imagining of a better tomorrow in its view is sufficient to reform the longest uh, standing democracy on earth. In effect, it is a party that seeks to attract support by standing for nothing other than disruption. Call it the Seinfeld party. How do you respond to that? Oh, so we're trying to improve the lives of people in Massachusetts and Missouri. And the game that people want to play right now is what are you really? Like, uh, no, no, you say you're this, like, are you Democrat? Are you Republican? Because that's way, the way that uh, they want us to stay separated and pit against each other. And that's frankly the way a lot of the media want to operate too. Um, because they say, look, here's the blue message, here's the red message, here's what our audience wants. Now, what do Americans want? Americans actually want the same things when you, when you sit down with them. They want better lives for themselves and their kids. Uh, and unfortunately, they don't think they're getting that right now. Okay, so we got to talk about no labels because there was this reporting in Politico that you met with no labels. You've confirmed that. Um, two questions on that front. Have you talked to them about running for president? And what about Joe Manchin, who has also been connected to them? And Mitt Romney saying in this announcement yesterday that he's talked to Manchin a number of times and said, I lobby continuously that it would only elect Trump 
if Manchin jumps in this way? Uh, I, I'm an anyone but Trump guy. Not anyone, but like a, I'm a not Trump guy. Uh, and so if, if, it's a binary and, choice. You're, you will vote for Joe Biden. Uh, and if I were to, to if I were to run, or other people like me were to run, um, I've looked at the numbers. I would increase the chances of Trump winning if that is the matchup. Would uh, Manchin do the same? Uh, you know, I, I you'd have to ask someone who uh, has those numbers. The numbers I've seen suggest that any of a host of figures would increase the chances of Trump winning if there is a Trump-Biden rematch. But to Mitt Romney's point, two-thirds of Americans don't want a Trump-Biden rematch. Uh, they will be a combined uh, 160 in 2024. Uh, and it's irrational that in a country of 330 million, we'd be presented with these two gentlemen at this age and stage and say, hey, these are your choices. It just doesn't make any sense. So there's a lot of energy around, okay, if this doesn't make sense, what is the alternative? So do you think no label should shut down its effort that's been doing up this based on the numbers you've seen. Uh, you know, I, I'm the numbers guy, uh, but numbers. Yes, you are. But numbers do. Uh, you know, every number set of numbers I've seen, it's a snapshot of a moment in time. So that's a maybe. That's a you know, I mean, like who knows? I mean, the numbers I've seen suggest that someone um, running would increase the chances okay. of Trump winning. You um, you have said that you think Biden should debate not just Kennedy but others. Um, should a Democrat challenge Biden at this point? A hundred percent. You know, Ooh. I mean, uh, Governor Gavin Newsom, Governor Gretchen Whitmer, Governor J.B. Pritzker, Governor Phil Murphy, all of whom Governor Roy Cooper, complete support. Yeah, all of Biden. whom we all know would love to throw their hat in the ring if the DNC hadn't come and said, hey, guys, like uh, we're going to support Biden this time. Wait your turn. And it's the next cycle. And if Biden has a health problem, maybe it's you. I mean, the, the fact is there are only... Two things that could happen, really. It's that the American people say, you know what? Joe Biden was a great president for 2020, but we'd like someone else. Mm -hmm. Or Joe Biden wins, but it's a genuine process, and then everyone feels better about him. I mean, what is the downside, really, of having an open process? Let's talk about the book. Um, because third party and an actual third party that is successful or builds towards success is a, is a big focus of the book. Why did you write this book? We wanted to tell a story as to how the next election slash the last election could play out based upon a dysfunctional political system that is more concerned with trying to preserve a creaking, disintegrating status quo than actually responding to what the American people want. Plus, I ran for president. I had all these experiences. And it's like, how do you convey that to the American people in a, in a way that I can get a message out? But in a novel, it's interesting. All your other books have been, have not, you know, not been Non-fiction, novels. Yeah, and now sure. you're... Is this fun? Oh, well, it's different, Poppy. And it's one reason I did have a writing partner because, you know, it's like uh, I'm, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not an experienced novelist. Yeah. Um, but uh, when I was running for president, my campaign team would always whisper in my ear, bio, bio, um, mm. because what, what they are saying is that people need to attach themselves to stories and narratives. Mm. Uh, and we wanted to write this novel so that we could construct a narrative that paints a vivid picture of how the next election could go if we don't get our acts together. Well, the book is called The Last Election. It's a fascinating book. Um, not bad for, for a shot at being a novelist. <laughs> oh, well, thank you, Phil. I appreciate it. <laughs> we appreciate He's your time, Andrew. Critic, Ray. No, so. it, was, it was good. It was a really yeah, good read. Yeah. It was a fast read. Um, appreciate your time. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you. And you can get uh, the book, The Last Election. It's out now. Ahead, here from lawmakers as new data showed the child poverty rate doubled last year after the end of the enhanced child tax credit. There are things that can be done to turn this around. We'll tell you what they are ahead.
more CNN This Morning to come after the break. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. We have now proved something pretty phenomenal and at the same time, uh, pretty obscene. And what we've proved is that poverty for children in America is not some accident, it's a policy choice. Senator Cory Booker calling out the choice of many of his fellow senators not to renew the expanded child tax credit. Now, since that expansion expired and COVID stimulus payments ended, the rate of poverty among American children Double, meaning more than 5 million children have fallen into poverty. Senator Joe Manchin defended his opposition to extending that expanded tax credit, telling Semaphore, quote, it's deeper than that. We all have to do our part. The federal government can't run everything. Our next guest says progress has been made just on the state level. Adam Rubin is the vice president of campaigns and political strategy for the Economic Security Project. He has lobbied states to take action here, to do this on their own, where the federal government has stopped. Adam, thanks for being here. This is an issue Phil and I care a lot about, and it matters to so many American people. Explain to people why what Cory Booker is saying reflects the reality that we saw child poverty go from 5.2% to 12.4% in a year, simply because of a policy change in Washington. Yeah, thanks for having me. No matter who we come, who, who we are, where we come from, we all believe that kids should grow up with a roof over their head and food on the table. And we live in the richest country in the world. We can afford to do that. So that's why Senator Booker's right. Po- poverty is a policy choice. And with 9 million kids in this country living in poverty today, it's a choice we can't afford to make anymore. But fortunately, we have a tried and tested solution in the child tax credit. And that's why we need to get that expanded. You know, I think the, the question that I've had, and this isn't just an on-Senator Joe Manchin, there's a, there are ideological differences, mm-hmm. which I think we all know well in terms of where the parties stand on policy and where the parties stand um, on assistance like this. I think the difference here is just the direct correlation, the direct connection to a single policy having such a dramatic effect. Um, lawmakers are trying to figure out a way to get this back. Do you see any pathway from that on the federal level before we kind of dive in on the state side? Yeah, I think I really do. The key is that four out of five voters agree that we should have no more tax breaks for wealthy corporations unless there's support for working and middle-class families through the child tax credit. So this year, Republicans have corporate tax breaks that they want to pass. Democrats have said that their top priority is to expand the child tax credit. And I think those are the ingredients for a bipartisan deal that we could see happen before the end of this year in Congress. So that's do them both, but that costs more. What do you say to people that say this country can't afford that, especially right now. We can't afford to have 9 million kids growing up in poverty. Every dollar that we spend on uh, lifting kids out of poverty pays off over the course of their lifetimes, improved educational outcomes, health outcomes. Um, It pays itself back eight to 10 times. So this is a really smart investment. And of course, it's the right thing to do to make sure that kids are growing up in families that can keep their heads above water. Go ahead. Well, I I want to ask you about something that... uh, Poppy had an interview with 
uh, Senator Mike Rounds, uh, Republican in the Senate conference, uh, who is known to be bipartisan, works mm -hmm. on bipartisan legislation, and she asked him about this. Take a listen. Part of it is, is simply because there's more cash available through government programs and through tax relief. But there's another piece of this, and it's the part that we haven't really talked about. And if we're going to talk about the income, we also have to talk about the expenses as well, which is even a bigger part. And I know that it, it, it sounds like we're talking about inflation-adjusted uh, income coming in, but we're not talking about the impact on a household basis of what inflation has done in the last two years. And Adam, I think the point I'm trying to get at in playing that is that this isn't just an ideological issue. I think there are people who question whether or not the, the connection was as direct uh, as I think I perceived it to be. Do you think that's an inaccurate read on things? Well, I think last year we saw that millions more kids with the child tax credit checks going out had enough to eat, had enough, uh, had shelter, had clothing. Um, and this year we see uh, a historic one-year jump um, in the number of kids up to 9 million who are struggling. But I think it's really clear for voters. 70% of voters support expanding the child tax credit, and that includes black and Latino voters who tend to lean towards Democrats. It includes white working class voters who tend to lean toward Republicans. So this is something that most Americans agree is a priority, and that's why I think we're seeing the big wave of momentum that we're seeing in the states to expand child tax credits. Just very quickly on that, when you do this state by state, is it as effective for the children and the families? And if you do it, this was $300 a month per child, no strings attached before on a federal level. When you do it at the state level, something comparable, is it as effective for families? We're seeing a huge wave of momentum in the states from red states like Utah to blue mm -hmm. states like Maryland and Minnesota expanding child tax credits this year. The number of states with child tax credits has doubled over the past two years, but we can't let it be a patchwork. Growing up in poverty shouldn't depend on what zip code you're growing up in. So that's why we need the federal government to step in and do their part as well before the end of this year. A debate we're definitely going to be following in the months ahead. Adam, we appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. CNN This Morning continues right now. Does the president still have the support among the people who got him to the White House in the first place? President Biden said he was a transitional figure to the next generation. Well, time to transition. A transitional president, and that's what he's doing. President Biden responding for the first time to Speaker McCarthy's impeachment inquiry. There are many of us that thought the evidence was so overwhelming. They've had nine months of collecting information. They had nothing. Something out of a Hollywood movie. They used heat-seeking technology to find him. That canine Yoda was able to ultimately get into this woods right here. I can assure you he will not escape while he is in our custody. Good morning, everyone. We are so glad you are with us. It's the top of the hour. A lot going on. And the government is still open for 16 more days. 16 more days. It's plenty of time. They've had <laughs> nothing in terms of actually moving forward on a potential deal. In fact, the House failed on its single appropriations right. bill yesterday. So everything's going great. Um, and also, the House is following impeachment, which yeah. is, seems to be more of a priority for House Republicans at this point. In just over an hour, the House Repub Republican Conference is set to meet behind closed doors to plot their impeachment inquiry of President Biden. Speaker Kevin McCarthy is forging ahead, even though time, as we noted, is quickly running out to prevent a government shutdown. Some skeptical Republicans, they're pointing out there's a lack of evidence directly against Biden. The president, well, he appears to be brushing it off. He's set to give a speech about the economy today. Reporters tried to ask him about impeachment yesterday. This is what he said. 
Mr. President, respond to impeachment. Respond to impeachment. So, a lot of questions, no response. But last night at a fundraiser, President Biden did say this to supporters. It was off camera, but he said, quote, I get up every day not focused on impeachment. I've got a job to do. He went on to say, don't know quite why. But they, meaning Republicans, just knew they wanted to impeach me. Now, best I can tell, they want to impeach me because they want to shut down the government. So that's the president's take. Republican Senator Mitt Romney is blasting what he calls, quote, the Trump wing of the Republican Party. After he announced yesterday he will not seek reelection, he was the only Republican senator, you'll remember, to vote to convict Donald Trump in both of his impeachment trials. He says there does not appear to be a case against Biden on impeachment. Listen. Well, there's no question, but that the Republican Party today is, is in the shadow of Donald Trump. Uh, he is the leader of the greatest portion of the Republican Party. Uh, look, I represent a small wing of the party, if you will. I call it the wise wing of the Republican Party. My wing of the party talks about policy and about issues that will make a difference to the lives of the American people. The uh, Trump wing of the party uh, talks about resentments of various kind and getting even and, and settling scores. So obviously that Senator Mitt Romney has never been secretive about his feelings about former President Trump. But if you take yesterday between the impeachment inquiry, uh, Romney deciding to leave after this term in office and the government shutdown, which is still very looming, you actually need to step back a little bit and you get a sense of the real dynamic that is now playing out in a very acute manner. And it is going to drive not just politics in Washington, but the entire country over the course of the next 14 months. So here's 2024 in a nutshell. Donald Trump, the leading Republican contender, leading by 40 or 50 points. Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker of the House. The two talk often, the two coordinate often, and the two discussed impeachment, along with others in the Republican conference, of President Biden. Also running for re-election. So far, doesn't seem to have any real Democratic challenges. And despite the calls for some columnist, clearly not planning on stepping aside anytime soon. There's the campaign. Here's how people feel about it right now. Even, even though Biden won by about 7 million votes or more in 2020, right now in the latest CNN poll, within the margin of error, very, very tight. How do people feel about the candidates themselves? The approval? Apathetic would be a good way. 35% for Trump, 36 for Biden. So where is Kevin McCarthy right now? Where is the House? Well, they're driving toward impeachment. They're driving to some degree towards a chaos driven by pre former President Trump and something that many Republicans inside the conference quietly don't actually want to go toward, all as a government shutdown looms. As for Biden, not really addressing any of it at all, the chaos at least. He's continuing to do what he always does. Yesterday, having a cabinet meeting on cancer research and cancer funding, drive towards that issue. Two very different approaches. As for Trump, well, he put on his social media yesterday, if you owned a McDonald's or even a much smaller, less complex operation, would you hire crooked Joe Biden to run it? There is the contrast. It is a very clear contrast, and it will be demonstrated again today. According to Anita Dunn, senior advisor for the president, his remarks today uh, framed as a major economic speech. The president will deliver that economic address, laying out the next chapter of Bidenomics versus Maganomics contrast, what's at stake for the American people, and debates about the federal budget. As for where the federal budget stands, well, House Freedom Caucus is driving McCarthy, who has launched that impeachment inquiry largely because members of the House Freedom Caucus want to impeach the president, not to sign on to a stopgap agreement, even though Republicans and Democrats know that is the only way out of a shutdown that looms just 16 days away. Where is the White House on that issue? Well, Shalanda Young, the OMB director earlier this week, noted a key point here. Speaker Kevin McCarthy 
and President Biden struck an agreement, a bipartisan budget agreement that was supposed to forestall any type of shutdown. In fact, it would actually result in deficit reduction. That's where the White House is. That's frankly where Senate Republicans are as well. Speaker McCarthy, not exactly the case. So what are House Republicans doing? Well, they had a major appropriations bill that was supposed to move yesterday, their defense funding bill. Instead, if you were on the House television system, you saw this, kind of the equivalent of the blue screen, screen of death. The House is in recess because they couldn't wrangle the votes to pass their own defense appropriations bill that wasn't ever going to move forward on a bipartisan basis anyway, which you need because Democrats control the Senate and the White House. They ended up having to pull it. Again, to some degree, chaos versus keeping the heads down and moving. That is the distinction that is the split screen. And it's a split screen to some degree that Romney also demonstrated yesterday. When he announced his retirement, Trump immediately attacked him, saying it was fantastic news for America. Also congratulated America because Romney was retiring. As for Biden, didn't say anything publicly. Quietly, he called Romney, I'm told, behind the scenes, said thank you for his service, talked a little bit about his decision, never talked about it publicly. That's the contrast. And yet, this is what Romney said yesterday. Take a listen. I think it would be a great thing if both President Biden and former President Trump were to stand aside and let their respective party pick someone in the next generation. Uh, President Trump, excuse me, President Biden, when he was running, said he was a transitional figure to the next generation. Well, time to transition. And Poppy, to some degree, when you listen to Romney, who spoke to Biden privately, uh, and I think made clear that he would prefer Biden if he was forced into that situation, and yet he still wants him to leave. This is the reality right now. Yeah, it's chaos on one side. It is Biden's kind of head down, do governance. That'll work on the other side. And it's Romney saying, I'd really just like anybody else. Yeah. But how interesting you're reporting too that they talked. Yeah. Phil, thank you. This morning, Biden campaign aides are terrified of the very real prospect that he could lose in a highly likely Trump-Biden rematch. A new CNN report says the fear is palpable among campaign operatives and throughout the Democratic Party. And the concerns go beyond complaints about Biden's age and mental capacity. It is that many voters are expressing indifference toward him in general. And now they're worried one mistake could enable a candidate they see as a singular threat to American democracy. We know all of this because of fascinating reporting from our colleague Isaac Dober, and he joins us now. This is really interesting. Ter- terrified. I was looking back at your reporting. That is the word they're using? Well, like they're, they are really scared of what it would be if Donald Trump would return to the White House. They are looking at the polls that everybody's looking at, seeing that this is a likely rematch that's coming. And it's going to be a close election in most people's minds. That means anything could go wrong here that could deliver the election to Donald Trump or also, of course, reelect Joe Biden. But when I spoke with people, uh, they were pointing to things like focus groups that uh, were I, I refer to in the article in a really Democratic district in which people are saying things like, uh, when they're asked about Joe Biden, I feel indifferent, honestly. The only thing I know is that I don't like the other guy. And so that is really driving a lot of the thinking about what this is going to have to be. Can they get the enthusiasm up for Joe Biden? Maybe. But can they get it up when they compare uh, him to Donald Trump and to what they see as a, a full MAGA takeover of uh, the Republican Party? That's the question that the Biden folks are looking at here. You know, Isaac, the, one of the things I've been fascinated by for several months is kind of the idea that behind the scenes they're building between their data operation and kind of their voter identification, uh, almost their, their chase program, how to figure out what voters actually want to see to be reached, if I'm putting that in a, 
And it's hard because it's changed dramatically. And you talked to Rob Flaherty, who's one of their, their top data and digital people, about this issue. Do they think they've figured it out? They think they are uh, in the process of trying to figure it out. Look, this is a really weird situation. Think about it. Think about how much media has changed, how much technology has changed, how much politics has changed since 2016, which is the last time we had a presidential election that wasn't defined by COVID and Zoom and car rallies and all that stuff. This is a really different environment. And the Biden campaign, what they're saying is, look, don't expect to see Joe Biden out on the campaign trail that much in between now and next spring. But what you should think is going on is that they're digging in a lot, doing a lot of testing, going through the kind of data mining that is just uh, was not possible before, and with the access to voter information on a scale that Democrats have never actually had. Yeah. Isaac DeVere, thanks. Really fascinating insight into what's going on in real time. Thank you. And joining us now to discuss, writer of the Very Serious Newsletter and host of the Very Serious Podcast. He is very serious. He's Josh Barrow, <laughs> senior political commentator, former White House communications director, Alyssa Farrah Griffin, and former 2020 presidential candidate, new author, well, multi-time author, but he has a new book. Andrew Yang is back with us, which I appreciate you sticking around very much. Josh, I want to start with you because I feel like part of the my theory of the case of what I was trying to lay out of the last 10 days is something that you've been talking about in terms of how Biden operates, why he operates, and why that's both effective and is difficult to resonate with the public, mm-hmm. I don't know, for two plus years. Yeah. No, I mean, I, th- I think that uh, Biden has been a successful operator with Congress in ways that are often not very public. And I think we'll see. I mean, when we had the fight over the debt limit earlier this year, I and I think many other people were surprised by how cleanly that was resolved. Biden had good success working together with House Republicans. Shalonda Young, who you quoted there, had you know managed to negotiate this deal with Kevin McCarthy that, that averted what a lot of people expected was going to be a serious crisis with non-payment on, 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 US, on U.S. bonds. And so we have two more weeks left, and and we'll see exactly what happens there with Kevin McCarthy. Uh, In the conference uh, earlier this week, Kevin McCarthy basically said to his members, well, you you don't want to pass our own appropriations bills, and and we don't want to pass an omnibus, and you don't want to pass a continuing resolution, so what are we doing here? And he's basically laying out there that the only option left there is a shutdown, but if they don't have their own agenda to put forward, it's basically a question of do they want to fund the government, do they want to agree to an omnibus that the Senate will ultimately write up before shutdown? Or after a shutdown, McCarthy in the past has successfully gotten the party not to walk down that sort of blind alley specifically on federal spending. So we'll see if that'll happen here. But, you know, Biden going on TV and making a bunch of speeches, I don't think is likely to move that forward. Switching topics here, um, Alyssa Anderson did a really illuminating interview, as he often does, with Nancy Pelosi yesterday. This part was so striking. He asked her multiple times about Vice President Harris. I want people to listen to that. Vice President Kamala Harris, the best running mate for this president? He thinks so, and that's what matters. Do you think she is the the best running mate, though? She's the vice president of the United States. So people say to me, well, why isn't she doing this or that? I said, because she's the vice president. That's the job description. In his column this week, David Ignatius cited her as a real sort of albatross around, not his words, but around the, the neck of the president that's making it harder for Biden this time around. And then Nancy Pelosi doesn't give a definitive yes. She complimented her a lot on how she's doing the job, but she didn't say yes when given two opportunities. Well, listen, the vice president has consistently uh, lagged the president in terms of approval rating. And as a vice president, having worked for one, Mike Pence, your job is basically do no harm, show up, don't kind of, you know, steal too much of the spotlight, but be a consistent force and frankly outperform the person behind you. 
And this is, of course, the old would Joe Biden would be the oldest president in history if mm-hmm. he were to win again in 2024. So it puts even more pressure on the vice presidency. So when Pete, when it's someone who's already people are kind of saying, so what are her outstanding accomplishments that she's done in her time in office? She's consistently had lower approval rating. Is she the best person Why? to take? This over? is your the communications expert. I'm really interested in why she's getting so much criticism. And is it warranted? I think that the White House hasn't necessarily set her up well. So the border, if they weren't planning to address it in a major way, do not make her your border czar. She met with some of the Northern Triangle countries, but nothing has effectively changed with the border crisis. Um, her, well, you the know, numbers the, got a lot better. The numbers better. got better after Title 42. But then I think also um, she's not really given a bunch of major policy speeches. They've tried to put her forward on abortion more. I think that's wise. I think with women, that's something that she could be utilized in. But the reality well, she is... she went to Tennessee, for example. She went, so she's been outspoken I think she... Too. I don't think she's been set up for success, but I also think that some of this is just, frankly, something she's failed to succeed in. Andrew, and I'm not intentionally trying to go after Josh when I say this, because I'm not putting him in this category, but like, I, I want to be completely candid. The idea of replacing Kamala Harris on the ticket is like a fever dream of like Washington salons, of people who aren't connected to any type of reality, which is not what you were saying. But I do want to get you. Okay. You had okay. a part. No, no, no. It's not, I'm saying the reality. He does it to me every day. It's not true. <laughs> I, know. I, I want to ask you, like the idea of that, the, the, the kind of uh, anxiety within the, the Democratic Party about everything, which isn't necessarily abnormal for Democrats, but at this moment. What's your read on why there's discontent? Uh, It's because 73% of Americans are nervous about Joe Biden's advancing age, and there is a low level of confidence in Kamala Harris as his successor. Um, Well, it's in large part because they're not actually listening to voters, honestly. It's one reason why if you had a Democratic primary, then if Joe prevails, then uh, all is well, and everyone says, hey, we're, we're going with Joe again. But the fact that they've completely shut down that process and told people that were considering running for president, hey, don't run uh, against Joe to keep your place in the party, um, uh, it's raising the anxiety level, in my opinion, for good reason. And I agree with Mitt Romney. I mean, Mitt Romney said, look, it's time for us to step aside for the next generation. Tens of millions of Americans feel the same way about both Joe Biden and Trump. And uh, I understand they're, they're kind of locked in this, <laughs> this uh, death match. Um, but having a president who literally named himself a transitional figure running at the age of 81, 82 is not what most Americans want. I do, just real quick, I have yeah. to ask Josh, since I, 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 I'm genuinely not intending to die. Since you out. hated it my column. Very, no, it is a, I understood the column. It's, yes. the, it's the what you're writing versus what the reality is, which I think you're very cognizant of uh, right. and acknowledge. Uh, but Josh's column is Biden should pick a new running mate in 2024. <laughs> uh, but explain, explain the rationale and what you actually kind of go through here. Well, one of the key reasons that Biden has to run for re-election is that Kamala Harris is so weak. Democrats look and they imagine what would happen if Biden stepped aside. Kamala Harris would be the front runner. Her polling is consistently worse than Biden's in head-to-head matchups where Biden is typically tied. Harris trails by four points. A four-point shift in the election outcome obviously is enormous. It means the, the difference between winning and losing in the last three elections. And so Democrats, you know, for all Joe Biden's weaknesses, they're clearly much better off with him at the top of the ticket than with her at the top of the ticket. And it reflects that it was a mistake to ever put her on the presidential ticket in the first place. She never had a job where she needed to appeal to swing voters. She came up as an elected official in Florida. She actually managed to almost lose a statewide election in Florida to a Republican, which is not very impressive for a Democrat. In 2010, she was elected by one point as state attorney general. But the way she got nominated is in California. California, yes. 
And the and the way and and the way that she got nominated, she's been very good at playing a Democratic Party inside game, where she's popular with staffers and with with big donors. She's sort of you know, if you're an extremely partisan Democrat, she's probably the kind of Democrat who appeals to you. The problem is that that's not a good way to win a presidential election. And so Biden, because he is a transitional figure, because he's going to be so old, and there's a, he will probably serve out a second term if reelected, but there's a decent chance that he wouldn't. The Democratic Party needs someone who's ready to pick up and lead the party, and that's clearly not Kamala Harris, given where her polling is. Hey, Josh, if you have Josh. someone like Gretchen Whitmer, who's, the, who's won two elections in Michigan by nine points and 11 points, who's built a state party there that has taken over the state legislature, I mean, that's the sort of figure that you want to, to be leading the Democratic Party forward, someone who can win a majority. I want you guys to I, get I, I just want to say, I think they should have a vice presidential primary if they don't have a presidential primary, you know, and just <laughs> let everyone say, look... I will be the successor and I'm legitimately, uh, you know, like anointed by the people. Again, something that will never happen. But yes, I agree. Listen, I think what David <laughs> Ignatius highlighted so well, I've been saying this for, for many months, is you, the, the one of the most effective cases the Biden administration made, and they made it in the midterms, was Donald Trump and extremist Republicans are a threat to democracy. But you cannot say the republic is hanging in the balance, but we are going to run somebody who's pulling neck and neck with Joe Biden or a vice president who is, or, I'm sorry, neck and neck with Donald Trump, or a vice president who is polling even lower against Donald Trump. That's where there's a disconnect, and I think there needs to be a reality check within the Democratic Party. If you're actually going to argue this is about saving the country, then you have to put up someone who can actually win. And yet... Here we are. This, no, this is it. And I think that's the part of the theory of the case, and I know we got to go, is that those people will come home. Like, that argument will land again when people start to really it's focus gamble. in. It's, yeah. And I think that was what Isaac's reporting got at, right? Like, they understand the stakes here. Uh, and the reality, and that there's not really a net at this point. All right, guys, that was a great conversation. Thank you, guys. For hanging out. Thank you. The biggest names in tech converging yesterday on Capitol Hill, meeting with senators about artificial intelligence, and a stark warning from Elon Musk. And as Washington faces another potential government shutdown, two senators are pushing legislation to end shutdowns altogether. They're going to both join us live. Stay with us. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. I asked everyone in the room, is, does, is government needed to play a role in regulating AI? And every single person raised their hands, even though they had diverse views. Senate lawmakers met in a closed forum with tech leaders yesterday to discuss concerns and opportunity from artificial intelligence. Major players in tech were there. Mark Zuckerberg, Elon Musk, Bill Gates, and many others. Also, Leaders of several civil rights and labor groups, also the head of the teachers union, they were there as lawmakers consider how to craft guardrails for AI. One of the forum's participants, the president and CEO of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights, Maya Wiley, told the group to make sure that it is, quote, a fully democratic process and that, quote, any action protects consumers and people at the front end, not just try to fix it after they've been harmed. Happy to be joined by Maya Wiley this morning. Great to be there. Great to be here. Glad you were there. What did you hear in the room? Because this is how tech leaders described it. Here's Elon Musk. I think something good will come of this. this I think this, this meeting may go on history as being very important for the future of civilization. Google's CEO said it was, quote, very productive. Sam Altman, who runs OpenAI, of course, he created ChatGPT, says everyone shares the same incentives of getting it right. What was it like in the room? 
Well, first of all, I do want to applaud the the gang of four, as we've been lovingly calling these bipartisan senators getting together under uh, Majority Leader Schumer's leadership. And it was really important to be able to have this kind of conversation. I want to say that up front. Uh, and I think there is a lot of sentiment and agreement. Uh, the Senate Majority Leader is completely right. Everyone raised their hand when he asked about regulation. I think the question is, and this was very interesting in the room, and, mm -hmm. and I have to say it was, you know, one of the issues that where we saw a real power differential in the room between those of us focused on people uh, and companies focused on competition, which is, what does it mean to say regulation? And what are we regulating for? So, for example, Elon Musk, you know, certainly uh, was the one who went out there and said, look, basically, don't worry about self-driving cars. That's not the issue, the safety issue. You know, worry about the end of civilization. Well, you know, okay, none of us want to live in Terminator world. Um, this is the person who has 42,000 satellites up in space. Mm -hmm. I mean, but the, but the question became, all right, but you know, and we had one academic in the room, um, Pro Professor Deborah Raji, who said, yeah, and actually called that out and said, well, actually, there really are very serious concerns about what AI does when it comes to hurting people. And that does include self-driving cars. And we need to make sure we're regulating so there's safety there. I think that's a really important kind of conversation, but yeah. we need more of that kind of conversation with the public. It's with the public. It's really interesting you say that. And it's really interesting you talk about this power differential in the room between the sort of billionaire business leaders and folks like you guys who are raising your hands on this stuff. Also, by the way, bipartisan Senator um, uh, criticism of this, right? Senator Blumenthal talking about we've already got a framework legislation out there to regulate AI. He said this form is not created to produce legislation. Josh Hawley calling it a giant cocktail party. Are they right? And should this have been in front of the American people? Well, you know, I, first of all, I think this conversation is and is going to continue to be in front of the American people. And it is thanks to senators like Senator Blumenthal and Senator Hawley. Mm -hmm. I don't think we were ever thought we would put those two names together. <laughs> and that's an incredibly important thing to recognize, that there really is a bipartisan opportunity here. And particularly when we're starting from a place where whether you're the civil rights community or the tech sector, there's agreement that there has to be regulation. I mean, the question is what? And I think there's going to be legislation. There's going to be a way to enable this. You know, we have at the leadership conference created the Center on Civil Rights and Technology in order to have more of these conversations and enable and right. create more public dialogue and public education. That's a must. Can I ask you this? There was a big problem with facial recognition technology a few years ago because it was mainly created by white men. Having diverse voices in the room and creating this technology and regulating it, can you speak to why that is so important for the future? Yeah, look, it, this is so critical, and this is part of what we were saying in the room, but where there's a real power differential in terms of understanding what this really means for real people. Not as much on facial recognition. I think there's so much research out there. Mm -hmm. uh, tech firms would, would agree with that. But that when we're talking about artificial intelligence, uh, we're talking about these models built on data, yep. and data that is scraped from an unequal discriminatory society, <laughs> whether you're women, whether you're people with disabilities, but people of color, facial recognition is one of the really obvious high risks, mm -hmm. but also where you get the data from. Um, we're seeing 
that, for example, people of color, when we get facial recognition, it's coming through law enforcement. Oftentimes when we have people stopped and then biometrics taken, if they're arrested, even if they're never ever charged with a crime. Mm -hmm. But that means you show up in the data in a particular kind of way. And, and one of the elephants in the room in the discussion yesterday was that the European Union has been taking the lead on protecting consumers, mm -hmm. protecting privacy, mandating transparency, trying to protect startups that'll provide more competition for big tech companies, but saying it all has to be done, preventing risk, particularly to marginalized communities like facial recognition. And many of the people in that room uh, who were saying we agree with regulation were also kind of saying, but don't do EU, the European mm. Union, mm. when we have the opportunity as the West yeah. globally to come together and say, we're going to set the standard for the world that says right. we're going to put people first and ensure that technology serves people, not profit. And with GDPR, just one example of where Europe led on this with social media, the companies have also shown takes a lot of work, it's expensive, but they can comply with it if governments mandate it. Um, Maya Wiley, president and CEO of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights, thank you very much. Illuminating to hear about what it was like in the room. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks. Have a pleasure to be with you. Well, we're getting new details about the dramatic capture of a convicted murderer who was on the run in Pennsylvania for two weeks, his ultimate plan if he escaped the search radius, and how the hero dog, Yoda, used the force I wish I would have written that myself. To find the fugitive, that's next. Also, the countdown is on. If the United Auto Workers Union and Detroit's big three automakers can't reach a deal by midnight, thousands of workers could walk off the job. The two sides still pretty far apart this morning. That's next. Well, this morning, the countdown is on for the United Auto Workers Union and Detroit's big three automakers to reach a deal. You can see the clock behind me. They have until 11.59 p.m. tonight to find consensus where thousands of workers could walk off the job. It talks, they haven't been going well. They are still not going well. And now the union president is announcing plans for a targeted strike at a limited number of plants that could grind auto production to a halt. They nickel and dime our members every day. They price gouge the American consumer, and they squeeze the U.S. taxpayer for every dime they can get. The big three can afford to immediately give us our fair share. Sources tell CNN that negotiations have proven, quote, uniquely challenging because of a new approach by Man, you saw there, Sean Fain and UAW leadership. Unlike past negotiations, the UAW has not selected a single automaker with which to seek an initial deal that would be replicated by others. And, and Poppy, I think the reality right now is, as much as we've paid attention to this story, it is going to get so much bigger if they can't find a way forward. And it's not just a Detroit issue or a business issue. This is a domestic economic issue with huge repercussions. Right. I was just looking at some analysis um, that says from Anderson Economic Group, just 10 days of a strike of all the big three would cost this economy $5 billion. And that's just 10 days. Yeah. yeah. We'll keep an eye on it, Phil. Thank you very much. We're also learning new details this morning about the dramatic capture of a convicted murderer in Pennsylvania. U.S. Marshal tells CNN that Danilo Cavalcante told law enforcement officers he was planning to carjack someone and then drive to Canada. Cavalcante also told investigators about three near encounters when officers nearly stepped on him during their search. That's how close they were three times. And just a reminder, this is how it all started. Cavalcante crab walked 
his way out of that Chester County prison on August 31st, two weeks later, just 22 miles from the prison. That's where he was caught. Our correspondent Danny Freeman joins us again this morning. You were on with us, Danny, during the breaking news of his capture and arrest yesterday. And now we have so many more details. So many more details, Poppy, that were really stunning, revealed on CNN last night and just show how close law enforcement officers were to Cavalcante. But, Poppy, police always said this was a tactical game of cat and mouse. And yesterday, the cat won. The subject is in custody. Repeating, subject is in custody. Two weeks of multiple search perimeters and hundreds of law enforcement officers combing woods, farms and creeks have come to an end as escaped inmate Danilo Cavalcante is finally caught. CNN affiliate CBS News Philadelphia capturing video of him escorted by armed officers into the back of an armored vehicle. Our nightmare is finally over. The walls begin to close on Cavalcante early Wednesday morning. An armed tactical team converged on a location inside a search zone after aerial infrared cameras detected a heat signal, according to Pennsylvania State Police. They were able to move in very quietly. They had the element of surprise. Cavalcante did not realize he was surrounded until that had occurred. That did not stop him from trying to escape. He began to crawl through thick underbrush, taking his rifle with him. A police dog with the U.S. Border Patrol tactical unit named Yoda was released on the armed fugitive. We knew that he was armed and using uh, a canine we felt was a reasonable option before um, upgrading to deadly force. The four-year-old male Belgian Malinois subdued Cavalcante, preventing him from using the rifle he was armed with, according to U.S. Customs and Border Protection. He was just essential as far as the tracking and the searching, as were numerous other canines that were here. Cavalcante spent nearly two weeks on the run, living in part on a watermelon he found on a farm and drinking stream water, according to authorities. He was a desperate man. He was actively uh, avoiding apprehension. He had hunkered down in an area that was very, very secluded, very, very wooded, and he didn't move for the first couple of days. His end game was to carjack somebody and to head north up to Canada, and he intended to do that in the next 24 hours. For the family of Deborah Brandau, Cavalcante's ex-girlfriend who he was convicted of killing, relief. Her sister Sarah releasing a statement saying, We are profoundly grateful for the support and hard work performed by the U.S. police over these last days. And at this moment, me and my family need to regroup and focus on processing everything that has happened as we take care of each other. Poppy, Cavalcante had his preliminary arraignment yesterday morning. He was officially charged with felony escape. He's now back behind bars, importantly, in a state prison. Poppy? Danny, your your reporting on the ground for these two weeks has been really extraordinary. Thank you very much. All right, so lawmakers have 16 days to pass a spending bill or the government runs out of money. Senators Angus King and James Lankford will join us next hour with their bipartisan plan to keep us going more CNN this morning to come after the break. Congress is racing to avoid a government shutdown at the end of the month. Failing to do so would put thousands of federal employees out of work and put significant pressure on the U.S. economy. Our next guest, they are pushing bipartisan legislation to end the government shutdowns altogether. There's an actual legislative solution 
here that they've put forward. Joining us now, Senator James Lankford, a Republican from Oklahoma, and Senator Angus King, an independent from Maine uh, who caucuses with the Democrat senators. I appreciate your time. Uh, I want to dig in on the bill in a second, but just to start with the idea, as Senator Lankford that right now, you guys, this isn't a new thing, neither the countdown clocks towards a shutdown nor this legislation. You've proposed this uh, several times. You guys have been talking about this on a bipartisan basis for several years now. Uh, do you feel like this moment is different because it seems like some of your colleagues in the House uh, aren't just uh, considering a shutdown? Some of them seem to actively want it at this point. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that anyone really wants a shutdown. We do want a solution to some of the issues that are going on, especially debt and deficit. All of us see the debt and deficit issue, and we're always looking for what is the moment that we can actually address this accelerating debt and deficit. But this is an issue on ending government shutdowns we've talked about for a long time. Uh, we do need to have the debate on debt and deficit. We do need to do the hard work of that, but we don't need to have a government shutdown. We have government workers that are not getting a check. We have chaos across the country as people can't call federal agencies. Uh, it actually spends more taxpayer money than it saves by any by a far amount. Uh, so it's wasteful on the taxpayer. It's difficult on the federal workers. And it's difficult on the American people. Let's let's have the debate on debt and deficit, but let's hold the American people harmless in the process. Senator King. Um I feel like we talk about this every time we're within two to three weeks of the government shutdown. Everybody says, hey, that's a great idea. And then it never kind of moves forward. Why do you think that this legislation, this proposal, hasn't gained traction after the eventual solving of the shutdown problem? Well, I think the problem is we get through a shutdown and everybody sort of relaxes and says, oh, that's done and we'll move on. The reality is this is becoming a, a regular occurrence. And is, as uh, James Langford said, it, it's very damaging to the economy. Thousands of jobs in Maine, people aren't there to answer the phone. Mortgage, mortgages went down 13% during the last shutdown because there wasn't anybody there to, to process the, the federal piece of the mortgage, uh, uh, of the mortgage process. So it has a really serious impact. We're, we believe that this may be a moment when people are going to start taking uh, a solution seriously. And what we're basically proposing is that uh, there's no travel money. There'll be an automatic renewal of a of a, a continuing resolution every every two weeks until right. we get a solution. But nobody leaves until we get to that solution. Uh, it's it's our version of lock them in a room till they get the decision made. It, it's a it's a very um, you're very cognizant of the dynamics of Congress, which is pain. Uh, it's usually what brings results. Pain, pain and deadline. Uh, Senator Langford, in terms of these the current state of affairs. Uh, Speaker McCarthy yesterday told his conference he thought he was going to strip out the Ukraine piece of the supplemental funding that they're trying to attach. Um, do you agree with that approach in the current negotiations? Yeah, I, I didn't see the particular piece from Speaker McCarthy, but we do need to stand with the people of Ukraine. Uh, the people of Ukraine are in a fight literally for their lives at this point. The Russian army led by Putin is coming in and just slaughtering their neighbors. Uh, so we should stand with people who are being attacked on this. Now, we shouldn't have American troops on the ground, uh, but to just ignore what's happening there and assume a war in Europe is not going to affect the United States is to ignore all of 20th century history. Uh, so trying to get a faster into this war is much better for the American people and for the global stability. And, and Senator Lankford, are you concerned at all that the kind of the move towards an impeachment inquiry just creates another hurdle given the fact there's only 16 days left. 
Yeah, there, it's, uh, there's a lot of noise in D.C. It just got noisier uh, as well. And the, the conversation about an impeachment inquiry, that's going to be weeks and weeks and weeks in the process, as it appears at this point. They still have a long way to go to actually get to that vote. And then in the eventual vote, if they choose to be able to do impeachment, that's in the House. and That's the process they're going to do. But that shouldn't affect uh, the next two or three weeks. Uh, Senator King, you, your name came up yesterday. There's a lot of attention on one of your colleagues, uh, Republican Senator Mitt Romney, about a text that you sent him warning him um, of potential uh, problems on January 6th. Uh, he wrote about that. He, he passed that along to Leader McConnell. I, I was wondering if you could kind of give some context from your side of how he sent that text and why. Well, I, I was hearing from uh, some friends in the Pentagon that there was some chatter on, on the Internet. This wasn't classified. This was basically Internet uh, traffic talking about the possibility of, of some kind of violence here on January 6th. And Mitt Romney's name came up. As you recall, he was the only Republican to vote uh, for the conviction of uh, President Trump in the first impeachment trial. And uh, when I heard his name, I thought I ought to let him know. I mean, it's, it's a pretty poor friend who doesn't warn somebody who's a friend that uh, they might be in danger. It was all rumors. And as I say, it was chatter on the Internet. But even if there was, uh, we all considered it a remote possibility at the time, I just thought I ought to let Mitt know. Senator Lankford, you are a Republican senator who is known for working across the aisle when there are issues that align. There's no question about that. Yeah. What is it like to see somebody like Senator Romney uh, decide to depart? And I think have some very critical framing about where the party is at this point. Yeah, it, obviously, everybody makes their own decisions in their own direction. He served as a governor. He was a presidential candidate for Republicans. He served in the Senate. He served in leading the uh, Olympics in the past. He's been known to be able to work across the aisle. Uh, he's been one that's frustrated Republicans and Democrats alike at different points uh, on different issues. Uh, so we have several members, uh, Kirsten Sinema. Uh, we have uh, Joe Manchin. Quite frankly, my friend Angus King has frustrated both sides of the aisle at times as we all try to engage. We have a responsibility to be able to represent the people that we represent, not a certain party. I'd like to chime in there. Mitt Please. Romney's going to really be missed because he was a guy, he was so smart and so principled and thoughtful. He was a guy that you could go to and say, here's a serious issue. Let's talk seriously about it with, without regard to the political ramifications. He's going to be a real loss to this body. Uh, just before I let you guys go, and I would, I would put this out to both of you, would either of you be considering not running uh, the next time you're up for re-election? Just wouldn't want to specify between either of you, but if anybody's up in a near-term race and hasn't made a decision yet, who may be from Maine, do we know? Well, I, I am running again in 2024. I, I'm, uh, I'm working at it actively. I have a campaign manager and I'm working at it and uh, interacting. Being, I'll be back in Maine tonight and uh, over the weekend. So uh, I'm, I'm hard at it because I think the, the, uh, it's funny. I I've, uh, haven't sat down with Mitt Romney. He and I looked at the same issue and made opposite decisions. I just decided this wasn't a time to leave, uh, wasn't a time to walk away based upon what the circumstances right. are here. So I've decided to stick with it and uh, I'm, I'm going. Yep, thankfully I'm five years away from that decision. <laughs> yeah, no, I know, I know, I, I appreciate it. Uh, Senator Langford, Senator Angus King, we appreciate your time. The legislation, again, is not something that's new. You guys have pushed it several times and yet we're back here every time. Maybe this time will be different. You guys are certainly giving that a shot. Appreciate your yeah, time, guys, thank so. you. Thanks. Thank you. Nice to see people working together, Phil. All right, does Gen Z struggle more with mental health than millennials? There's a new survey and it shows some signs of a pretty alarming shift. We'll explain ahead.
All right, welcome back. As more members of Gen Z emerge into or approach adulthood, there's a new survey that looks at the challenges that this younger generation faces with less than half feeling like they are thriving in life. Joining us now, CNN National Correspondent Athena Jones. So glad you looked into this. What does it tell us? Well, there's a lot in this poll. And one thing we found that the pollsters found is that Gen Z, uh, they struggle more with mental health and emotional well-being than previous generations at the same age. And they rate their mental health far lower than older peers. So you can see here, just 20% of Gen Z say their mental health is excellent. That's at least nine points lower than all other ages. And more than two, more than a third say their mental health is only fair or poor. All is not lost, of course. These numbers, excellent plus good, is still more than six in 10. Yeah. But you can see the difference across generations. And part of the reason is the pollsters found that Gen Zers say they experience more sadness, more loneliness, negative emotions like that. But the biggest numbers they found were with anxiety and stress. 51% said they felt anxious a lot the previous day. 62% said they felt stressed the prior day. So we're seeing, uh, we've heard a lot of talk in recent years about mental health struggles, especially when it comes to the younger generation. So this poll really bears that out. What are they most worried about, Gen Z, when it comes to the future? Well, they're most worried about making sure they can make enough money to live comfortably. That's what 69% of them said. It was the, the, the most cited uh, worry. And they said that, you know, they, they feel like they're going to have a good future, but only 44% say they feel prepared. And that's because they feel that their schools, while offering them a view of, of, of different career paths, they don't give them enough practical opportunities to prepare themselves for the workforce. So you say uh, 34% say their school offers a chance to learn how to apply for a job. Just a third say their school offers opportunities to work on projects relevant to the job they want. And less than 30% say school offers help on how to interview for a job. When it comes to barriers, they think 64% believe that financial resources are going to be a barrier for them achieving their goals and their dreams. And that is really broken down when it comes to college. Those who want to go to higher education, only 53% say they'll be able to afford it. And when you break it down by race, you can see that uh, white Gen Zers are the most likely to believe they can afford it. Black Gen Zers, the least likely. So a lot of data so in this fascinating. poll. fascinating. And numbers that we need to pay attention to as we create policies that affect them as exactly. they get older. Thank you, Athena, Thanks. very much. Phil. All right, well, at midnight, thousands of members of the United Auto Workers Union could walk off the job. The union just laid out a strike plan against the big three automakers. We are live in Detroit outside of GM headquarters next. And now to today's Impact Your World. Meet a man who spent decades cleaning up the Anacostia River in the nation's capital. On a hot summer day, and this is where we would be able to go into the river and swim and cool off. When my children became old enough to start going down to the stream to play. I noticed that it was trashed, the toxic sediment, the floatable trash and debris. It just made for a toxic soup. I wound up organizing cleanups in my own neighborhood, which eventually led me to found a nonprofit organization that led to the installation of a litter capturing device, the first one in the whole Western Hemisphere. That allowed us to create a workforce development program. And we engaged youth from all around the city who would take responsibility for cleaning up the litter traps. We've also closed down a major polluter. We just have to collect the data. The Anacostia River has improved tremendously over the last decade. One real indicator is eagle uh, nesting again. There are fishable days, 
and there are swimmable days. You see kayakers, you see crew teams now. Residents who used to see the river as a place to stay away from, now view the river as a place to come to. Morning everyone, top of the hour. We are so glad you are with us on CNN this morning. Let's start with five things to know for this Thursday, September 14th, just minutes from now. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is expected to meet behind closed doors with three committee chairs who have been tapped to lead the impeachment inquiry into President Biden. And we are also just 16 hours from a potential strike. Thousands of members of the United Auto Workers Union could walk off the job they don't reach a deal with Detroit's big three automakers before midnight tonight. And this Republican Senator Mitt Romney calling for a new generation of leaders as he announces he will not seek re-election next year. The Utah Senator slamming members of his party saying a large portion don't believe in the Constitution. And human actions have pushed the earth outside the quote safe operating space for humanity. That's according to a new scientific report that warns the world has surpassed thresholds needed to ensure a stable, livable planet. Also this hour, the Labor Department releases key inflation numbers. We'll give you some insight on where the U.S. is on all of that. This hour of CNN This Morning starts now. We're still very far apart on our key priorities. We do not yet have offers on the table that reflect the sacrifice and contributions our members have made to these companies. On August 29th, we made our first offer almost two weeks ago to the UAW. We've made three offers since then, and we've had no genuine counteroffer on any of those. That was the president of the United Auto Workers and the CEO of Ford. So miles apart on a deal this morning, we're only hours away from the deadline tonight for a high stakes contract negotiation between the union and Detroit's big three automakers. If no deal is reached by 11.59 p.m. tonight, thousands of workers could walk off the job. And since those talks have stalled, the union president is announcing plans for a targeted strike at a limited number of plants that could grind auto production to a halt. One analysis shows a 10-day strike could result in a nationwide economic loss of over $5 billion. Sources tell CNN negotiations have proven uniquely challenging. That's a quote, because unlike past negotiations, the UAW has not selected a single automaker which to negotiate with. This is about all three at the same time. If all 145,000 members were to strike at the same time, it could cost the union's strike fund more than $70 million a week. That's how they pay out their workers when they're not on the job. The Biden administration is in close touch, we're told, with all parties over the phone. Advisors have stopped short of saying President Biden would support workers, though, if they decided to strike. We have team coverage on the big day ahead. At the White House, our correspondent Arlette Sines is standing by. Let's begin, though, with Vanessa Yurkiewicz, who joins us in Detroit. You've been following these. You've been talking to the heads of the big three automakers and to the union head. Are we going to see a strike tonight? Poppy, we still have uh, a ways to go, but as you know, these deals come together in the very last moments. But a target strike approach is unique, and it is being executed by a unique leader, the head of the UAW, Sean Fain, talking about how this is going to play out. Essentially, the national union will reach out to local unions around the country and plan for certain days, certain times, and a certain amount of people to go on 
one-punch strike. That, however, will leave other members working in the factories. And for the union, this is a way to confuse automakers, to keep them guessing, and also, as you mentioned, to conserve that strike fund if this strike plays out for a number of weeks or months. But this does come with some risks, because if you leave union members on the factory floors, the companies are not obligated to pay those employees. And so you also need to look at how much of a supply these automakers have in the pipeline. We know that these big three automakers do not have as much car supply as they did in 2019 when GM went on strike. So there is a lot to consider a unique approach here. But just to remind our viewers what the union is asking for and what they have been asking for, they want a 40% pay, pay raise over four years. They want cost of living back into the contracts. They want a four-day work week and they want protections uh, against job loss that may happen in the EV transition. The union has said those demands still remain at the table, Poppy, and those demands have not yet been met. And the companies, what are what are they saying this morning? The companies are saying they are ready and willing to negotiate at any moment. We've heard the most from Ford, uh, from Ford CEO Jim Farley, who was visibly uh, disappointed and frustrated last night when we spoke to him, saying that he and Bill Ford yesterday showed up to UAW headquarters to deliver an offer. They did not see Sean Fain there, and they have received no feedback on that offer since yesterday. We are just hours away from a potential strike. Uh, we know that subcommittees are going to be meeting today discussing details of these negotiations, but frustrations clearly poppy on both sides of the table yeah. as the deadline looms. Vanessa Yurkevich, we know you'll stay on it. Thanks very much. Phil. Yeah, Poppy, I want to get straight to CNN's Arlette Signs live at the White House with more. Arlette, uh, Vanessa made a great point. These deals have often come together uh, in these moments late. And often White House officials are very cognizant of what's going on and certainly have a role, if not directly, in the negotiations. What's the level of anxiety in the White House right now? Well, Phil, publicly, the White House has tried to be optimistic, saying that they don't think a strike would ultimately uh, be uh, coming to fruition, but it is heading into crunch time at this moment. And the White House has public publicly been out there encouraging the parties to negotiate around the clock to try to secure a win-win agreement. But uh, sources who have been briefed on the negotiations talked to our colleague, uh, Kayla Tausche, and told her that this has really been a uniquely challenging moment, in part because of the strategy that's been employed by the UAW. In the past, in these types of negotiations, they have targeted simply one company going through that negotiation process and then trying to replicate it with others. This time around, they are focusing on all three all at once, which is creating a complicated uh, situation, according to some sources. But it really comes at a time that the White House has been closely watching this now for weeks. The president had appointed one of his top advisors here, Gene Sperling, with a history uh, as a Michigan native, uh, to try to be uh, a, a as the main point of contact between the UAW uh, or with the UAW and these big three automakers, the acting labor secretary, Julie Sue, has also been involved. And the president himself has engaged at times just last week, speaking to both Sean Fain of the UAW, as well as the executives of the three automakers. But what's unique in this situation is that the White House is not directly party to the negotiations. Yes, they are talking to each side. They're aware of what is going on, but they're not getting into the nitty gritty of negotiating 
negotiating these types of deals. But it is something that they will be watching closely as the day progresses, as the clock is ticking down till that midnight deadline on an issue that would have huge, uh, not just political ramifications for the president, but also economic ramifications. If they were to head to a strike, one of the immediate focus focuses here at the White House would be trying to address any of the economic impacts that could happen. So all eyes will be on the hours approaching as that midnight deadline quickly looms. Yeah, such a great point on the stakes. They are huge right now. Arlette Sines, thank you. Take a live look here at Capitol Hill. We're just minutes from now. The House Republican Party set to meet behind closed doors Some of the leadership there to plot their impeachment inquiry of President Biden. Kevin McCarthy is forging ahead. Enough time, even though time is running out to prevent a government shutdown. And some skeptical Republicans are pointing out the lack of evidence against Biden, evidence being the key word there. The president, for his part, pretty much brushing it off, preparing to give a speech on the economy today. At a fundraiser last night, Biden told supporters, quote, I get up every day not focused on impeachment. I've got a job to do. He also said, quote, I don't know quite why, but they just knew they wanted to impeach me. Now, best I can tell, they want to impeach me because they want to shut down the government. Our congressional correspondent, Lauren Fox, on Capitol Hill, watching it all, watching that clock, 16 days left to figure this out. Uh, very closely. What's going to happen today on the impeachment front? Yeah, this meeting was previously scheduled, Poppy, but obviously a lot has changed since House Speaker Kevin McCarthy announced he was opening that inquiry on Tuesday. Something that hasn't changed is the reality that the Republican conference is still very much divided as to whether or not this was the logical next step. One of the things that you can expect this morning is that the three chairmen who've been tasked with this inquiry are going to be laying out what they have found so far, giving members a sense of where they might go and trying to get everyone on the same page. Now, there's a lot of decisions that these three chairmen are going to have to make. And while staff among all of them have been communicating for months as they've been doing these investigations, they're going to be under more of a spotlight now that this is an official impeachment inquiry. Among the decisions they have to make include who to subpoena, how quickly to move, whether or not to go to court if some of their subpoenas are not answered. All of those things are going to be weighing heavily on not just the Republicans' plans for their investigations, but also the political realities for many of the members among the rank and file. So those are a couple of the things that they're going to be laying out in this meeting today. I did talk to Jim Jordan, the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, who is leading this investigation, and he argued that they are just going to keep going that in some ways this impeachment inquiry, which is now formalized, doesn't change what they have already been pursuing. Jordan said that yesterday he signed three subpoenas. He did not say who those subpoenas would be going to. But it's just such an important meeting for the Republican conference, not because of what they'll discuss, but because of the expectation and hope that members need to come out of there united, given the fact that the storylines right now around the Republican Party are they're deeply divided on not just this issue, but others, including government spending as well. Poppy? Lauren, thanks very much. Republican Senator Mitt Romney has announced he won't be seeking re-election, re citing age as a major factor in his decision and calling on young people to take the reins. I considered uh, my age and the fact that at the end of a second term I would be in my mid-80s, but the times we're living in really demand the next generation to step up and, uh, and express their point of view and to make the decisions that will shape our American politics over the coming century. 
Well, with no re-election campaign ahead, Romney is going what those young people might call full send against members of his own party. Here's what he told McKay Coppins for his new book. Quote, a very large portion of my party really doesn't believe in the Constitution. It doesn't specify who, but he does get personal about specific members of his party later, like former Vice President Mike Pence. Romney tells Coppins no one has, quote, been more loyal, more willing to smile when he saw absurdities, more willing to ascribe God's will to things that were ungodly than Mike Pence. And then there's Ohio Senator J.D. Vance, someone who Romney used to see as, quote, bright and thoughtful before his turn to Trumpism. Romney now saying, quote, I don't know that I can disrespect someone more than J.D. Vance. Then there is and are Senators Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz, who objected to certifying the 2020 election results even after the attack on the Capitol. Romney says, quote, they know better. Josh Hawley is one of the smartest people in the Senate, if not the smartest, and Ted Cruz could give him a run for his money. He says Hawley and Cruz, quote, were making a calculation that put politics above the interests of liberal democracy and the Constitution. Very candid words from Mitt Romney. Joining us now to talk about why he said this, what he said, and what is next for him is Mitt Romney's former public policy director, Lonnie Chen. Lonnie, it's great to have you. We've used you as a voice over the years on Mitt Romney's thinking. Can you talk about why he said all of this now and what he hopes it means for the party? Well, Poppy, I think it's an expression uh, of, you know, the frustration as well as the challenges that the last couple of years uh, have demonstrated. But, you know, Mitt Romney is a man of conscience. He's always been a man of conscience. Uh, you know, I, I've written a little bit about this and, and sort of thinking about him, not just as the conscience of the Senate, but in a lot of ways, the conscience of the country on many of these issues. And, uh, you know, it's going to bother some people. And I know not everyone will have agreed with him. But I think his decision is well-founded. I think it is thoughtful, like everything else he has done in his political career. So I'm not, um, I guess I'm not surprised, but in a lot of ways, I'm saddened because I think it's a loss for the country. It's certainly a loss for the Senate. Uh, and I do hope that this passing of the baton won't be a baton that just ends up dropping, unfortunately, given the kind of leadership that we're seeing uh, out of Washington right now. You know, to that point, Lonnie, I, I, you see a lot of people who will retire and say, what I'm really going to do now or people who lose campaigns and say, I'm going to focus on getting young people engaged. I'm going to focus on moving from outside uh, of Washington to, to get people headed in the direction that I want. And then the baton seems to get dropped quite often. Uh, those efforts are kind of all for naught or seem somewhat futile. The only criticism I heard from Romney supporters was we really would have rather had him in the Senate. We think he could be more effective there. Do you think there's merit to that? Well, I, I think he would have been an effective senator if he would have chosen to have run for re-election. I have no question he would have been. And I think he's going to be effective, by the way, in the period of time he has left in the Senate. He's still got a year and a half left, and he's going to do a lot of things, whether it's on uh, you know, China, you know, making sure that the U.S. can counter China. Uh, he mentioned climate change, which is an issue that I don't see many other Republicans, frankly, focusing on. So he's going to be doing the things he needs to do. But yeah, me personally, I wish he would have stayed. I, I wish he would have uh, stuck around because I think he's an important and valuable voice. That having been said, uh, he knows uh, the time to go. And I think that he's trying to set an example in some ways that people need to know when to say when. Uh, and, and Mitt Romney is, is a uh, self-reflective. He's somebody who understands exactly uh, what his own limits are. And I think we have to respect that. So, yeah, I would have loved to have seen him stick around. But I also respect this decision uh, that he made that I'm sure was not easy. What about his decision, as he told uh, The Washington Post in that interview, that he's just not going to really get 
behind anyone because he doesn't think his support is going to help. He said, I doubt my support will mean anything positive to any of the candidates at the finish line. So I'm not looking to get involved in that. Well, that's the thing about about him. You know, he's very realistic about where the Republican Party is right now, what his voice does and doesn't mean. Uh, and there are people who still deeply admire him, but I think he recognizes in the context of a partisan political primary like we're seeing right now uh, with, uh, with where the Republican Party is, with where this primary contest is, uh, he's trying to be realistic about what his voice will and won't mean. And I think that's refreshing. Uh, gosh, you, know, you got a politician who actually knows uh, where his placing is in the electorate, what his voice means and doesn't mean. So uh, I think it's a realistic perspective and, uh, and it's one that uh, is well-founded. Lonnie Chen, thank you for your voice on all of this. Great. Well, scientists warning that humans are pushing the earth outside the quote, safe operating space for humanity. The details from that alarming report, that's next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Welcome back. This morning, you've got hurricane and tropical storm watches issued for parts of the Northeast because of Hurricane Lee. The National Hurricane Center also warning there is potential for life-threatening storm surge, also flooding. Derek Van Dam joins us again this morning. Where is this going? Yeah, look, it's going to impact much of New England and into the Canadian Maritimes. This is uh, the look at the latest weather alerts, and you can see the hurricane watches for coastal Maine, but tropical storm watches from coastal Rhode Island, Massachusetts, and New Hampshire. This thing continues to balloon in size. It's absolutely massive, spanning at least a cloud deck over 850 miles. That's the same distance from Miami to Washington, D.C. What's interesting to note, it is moving north at 12 miles per hour, so it's picked up its forward speed in that northern direction so that you can basically track that out and show exactly where the path of the storm is headed but one very important note we've been stressing this for days is that you don't want to focus on the middle ground of this path because the impacts will be felt well out from the center of the storm remember tropical storm force winds extend as it stands right now roughly 300 miles from the center so we will feel the impacts Cape Cod all the way to Bar Harbor and near the border of Canada and the United States so here's the storm surge forecast as the winds wrap in behind it, Cape Cod, the Barnstable County area there, we have the potential for two to four feet. That's why there is a storm surge watch in effect for that location. On top of that heavier rainfall, that'll start to shift a little bit further east from where we thought yesterday. So maybe providing some relief from those hard hit flooding areas we saw across central Massachusetts yesterday, Poppy. Okay, Derek, thanks very much for keeping an eye on it. Appreciate it. Well, human actions pushing the earth outside a, quote, safe operating space for humanity. It's ominous, and it's according to a new ana analysis from 29 scientists from eight countries. The experts find that human activity has now put the world in the danger zone on several key indicators, including climate change, biodiversity, freshwater, and land use. Those thresholds are defined as what the world needs to stay within to ensure a stable, livable planet. CNN Chief Climate Correspondent Bill Weir joins us now. Uh, we were just talking that like, it feels like there's always really bad, catastrophic news here. What's your takeaway when you see something like this? Well, the most interesting thing, this is like if you think about the instrument panel on our little spaceship Earth. You know, these are the life systems that you keep an eye on as we're hurtling through space. And it's everything from freshwater and land use to climate change to temperature. And on six of those measures, we're, all, we're above the safe zone. Uh, biodiversity loss, you know, the, everything from pollinating insects to bird life that's crashing, 
to a million species of plants and animals that are moving, migrating now. This is a hard graph to read, but in the center there, that circle, that's the safe spot for humanity. And these, these sort of petals that are shooting out of this flower are the troubling spots. And the biodiversity crisis is the big one there. But what I find out of this is of the nine things that are, uh, that are really important for us to think about, one was outside the safe zone, and that was the ozone I was depletion, just going to ask you about right? the good news. In 1990, the ozone layer on that little chart was, all, was, was in the danger zone. Yeah. Right. But thanks to the Montreal Protocol, the most successful international environmental treaty ever, mm -hmm. that's fixing itself. The ozone hole is healing, and it's an example of what can happen what are you human saying beings there are pull policy together? decisions that can actually have an it effect? It is <laughs> stunning to think about no that. I know, it's shocking, but there is, an, there is an example of that where countries got together. Now, the example there is they had to eliminate these chemicals from air conditioners, and the American Chamber of Commerce, for example, was behind that because it meant more Supported profit for it. American manufacturers. Now the big one is oil and gas and coal. And that is so intrinsic to so many economies. Getting away from that is much more difficult than eliminating uh, hydrofluorocarbons from air conditioning. But it does show that you can reverse some of this. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's never too late. And the amount of damage is in our hands right now. And things that are happening at the grassroots level are hugely exciting. At the energy level, on the big picture, uh, electrification is exploding. Almost 90% of new energy projects in the United States this year are all renewable, mostly solar and batteries. Uh, so we're on the cusp of something. Oil and gas is going away. There right. is a, a, a better, healthier planet on the horizon. The, the question is, how much life as we know it now will survive that transition? Yeah. Bill Weir, thank you. Good to see you guys. Good to see you. Republican Senator Mitt Romney slamming his party, saying the GOP and this country need a new generation of leaders. We're going to be joined at the table by Republican presidential candidate Chris Christie. He is here to weigh in on that and a lot more. Stay with us. Oh, I think it'd be a great thing if both President Biden and former President Trump were to stand aside and let their respective party pick someone in the next generation. Uh, President Trump, excuse me, President Biden, when he was running, said he was a transitional figure to the next generation. Well, time to transition. Republican Senator Mitt Romney announcing he will not be seeking re-election. He is on his way out, but not out of the party, I should note. He is calling for a new generation of leaders to step forward, one that does not include President Biden, nor former President Trump. Let's talk about this and a lot more with Republican presidential candidate Chris Christie, who joins us at the table. So nice to have you in person. Good morning. Good to be here. Thanks, guys. Did Mitt Romney surprise you? No. No, I kind of thought two things about Mitt. One, that um, I think he feels like he had done what he could do inside that institution. Um, and secondly, I do think he's a guy who understands his place in the party at the moment um, and that uh, he doesn't want to stay there till he's in his 80s. Guy's got a big family and that he's genuinely close to. Not like some politicians pretend to be close to their families. Yeah. He actually is. So I don't think he wants to be, you know, commuting to Washington when he's 80. It sounded like a lot more than that, to be fair. I mean, it sounded like a lack of hope that he could make a lot of change in seven and a half more years in the Senate. And I asked that because in many respects, and he talked about this to The Washington Post, like, you are representative of a lot of what he represents, and he feels hopeless, yet you are still charging full steam ahead to well, try look, to I don't to think do he's this. hopeless, though, Poppy. I think what he is is realistic about what you can do as one of 100. Okay, let's call it realistic. Is yeah. he being more realistic than you are being? No, because he's being realistic about what you can do as one of 100. 
I'm being realistic about what you do as one of one. And if you're the president of the United States... You can't do a lot without some of those 100. Well, but you have the ability to persuade. Um, and when you're president, you have a lot of advantages to persuade. Okay. And plus, I'm an incredibly persuasive guy. So, um, you know, we'll be able to do a lot. <laughs> and uh, and I, I think Mitt, um, I think his call for a new generation of leaders when you have two guys as front runners who are going to be a combined 160 years old probably makes sense just on the numbers. You know, these guys, both of them, if they if they got elected, would be beyond the tables of life expectancy um, in their term as president. I think that probably makes no sense for us as a country. Would you want his endorsement? I'll take anybody's endorsement, um, uh, honestly, in our Republican Party. You know, if somebody wants to endorse me and come on and help, um, I'd be happy to have people's help. But in the end, what I learned, Phil, from 2016 was that endorsements don't matter nearly as much as they used to. Yeah. Um, and in the end, what you want more than anything else is people who are helping you do the tough work of a presidential campaign on fundraising, on policy, and those kind of things. And look, Mitt Romney is one of the brightest minds in our party, one of the most experienced in our party. So I would always take, I have taken advice from Mitt um, in, in the years that I was governor and since, and I'd be happy to take any advice he's willing to give. I, I want to ask you about the, the race, the people you're running against right now. Uh, the front runner, clear front runners, Donald Trump. We've talked about him quite often, but, but he said something that I think slots into the whole, like, is he being literal or is he being figurative? Is he just joking around? I want you to take a listen. But remember, it's a, it's a Democrat charging his opponent. Nobody's ever seen anything like it. That means that if I win and somebody wants to run against me, I call my attorney general. I say, listen, indict him. Well, he hasn't done anything wrong that we know. Of. I don't know. Indict him on income tax evasion. You'll figure it out. Look, I've covered a lot of Trump rallies in person. I understand the shtick and I understand kind of the presentation and the context here. But what's your read on that? Well, I think it's both. Right. So no one can run so against him. You think the, he might be serious about that? Oh, of course he is uh, about but not about the context. So no one can run against him again. If he wins, right. he's only got one term left and he no one will be able to run against him again. But do I think Donald Trump would try to use the Department of Justice and a compliant attorney general to punish his political enemies? Sure, I do. So I think both things are true. I think he was kidding about the context of what he was talking about in terms of, you know, someone's running against him. He's trying to make a point with what he's alleging Joe Biden is doing. But you know Donald Trump. Would Donald Trump use a compliant attorney general to go after his political enemies? Of course he would. And, and we saw that he tried to use the Justice Department to overturn the election. Um, and I wanted to put Jeffrey Clark in charge of it so that he would. So I don't think, given what his conduct was, forget about what he said in that rally, given what his conduct was in the aftermath of the election, it's absolutely not only plausible, but likely. You know, one of the most interesting uh, parts of what Romney said to me that hasn't gotten as much attention is when he basically said the Trump indictments and those actions that are alleged are old news. And the American people don't care that much about old news. They care about new news. And he talked about uh, President Biden and Hunter Biden, while also saying, by the way, he doesn't think there's evidence here to even launch this impeachment inquiry. But what do you think of that? Because so much of what you're running on is what Trump is alleged to have done and how he did act. We see. The difference is, I think he's right about the indictments. I think people have processed that and said either they agree or they don't agree with those. To me, what I'm talking about is the conduct that underlies them, because that conduct 
is a preview of what he would be like if he were the nominee again and the president again. Mm -hmm. So I do think that's new, according to Mitt's analysis. What he will do next um, will absolutely be consistent at 78 years old with what he's done before. And, the, and let's just contrast, Poppy, where he was in 16 versus where he is now. In 2016, he stood on the convention stage and said, I am your voice. Today, he says, I am your retribution. Those are two very different people. And I would argue someone who is now just out for himself purely and not have any element where he's out for the American people. And that's something new and something that people should really be considering when they're deciding who we want our nominee to be. Plus the fact that I just don't believe he can win. Uh, and, and that's a huge problem for the Republican Party. Are you ever going to get a shot at him directly? I know you've said... You're going to follow him around the country if he doesn't show up at the next one or two debates. Why wait? Why aren't you? I know he doesn't travel a ton right now, but pick well, up that's his travel the schedule and Phil, be with him everywhere he I mean, goes. The problem is that, that he hasn't been anywhere. This is, this is a guy who has made fun of Joe Biden's basement strategy. Um, you know, he's staying in his little house in Bedminster and going nowhere, hiding behind the, the, his lawyers um, and hiding behind his political advisors. You think that's all what it is? Quiet. His oh, lawyers yeah. are saying don't say anything. His political advisors are saying don't go anywhere. That's right. I absolutely think that's what because it is. Because they're now, scared? Of course. Well, because they're scared of him. They're scared of what he'll say um, and how much deeper he will dig his hole that he's dug it already from a legal perspective. So I think they're concerned about that. Now, he's Donald Trump. And the reason why I do think, to answer your question, I will get a shot at him is because he won't listen to his lawyers, ultimately. He has a very short-term ability to be compliant um, with anybody's advice and he'll listen for a little while. One of us will say something on a debate stage or someplace else that he'll want to respond to, and he'll knee-jerk react and respond. So, yeah, I think maybe the third or the fourth debate will finally see him, because I also think that voters will start to worry a bit about it uh, in terms of not showing up and defending his policies. And remember, the state polls are significantly different in some of those early states than the national polls are, and those are the ones that he has to keep an eye on. Governor, I do want to ask you about some policy issues, and I want to ask you about abortion. We talked about it last time you were on yep. um, with us and, and where you stand now, because it was your position in 2015 that you thought, in your words, a, quote, highly reasonable proposal was, quote, one that brings Americans together. It was called the Pain-Capable Unborn Child Protection Act, and it would protect unborn children beginning at 20 weeks. That was 2015. People can evolve. But you're now running for president and after Roe versus Wade was overturned, this is a critical issue for people in both parties. Do you still think a 20-week federal ban on abortion is a, quote, highly reasonable proposal? It could be, but we're going to have to see. I think now, given that Roe was overturned, um, I want the states to decide. Um, I've been arguing as a lawyer for years that Roe versus Wade was wrongly decided and that the states should decide. Now we're in the midst of this great democratic experiment. State by state by state, people either through referenda or through their legislatures and their governors are being able to decide what, what goes on in their states. So my, to be clear, and then you could follow up, sure. to be clear, I want all of the 50 states to be able to weigh in, if they want to, on what their state laws should be. And then let's see if it's a consensus. Maybe the consensus is at 20. Maybe it's at 15. Maybe it's at 12. So but, it, but we have to see it because look at what's happening. In Oklahoma, for instance— the law is no abortion of any kind except if the life of the mother is threatened. In my state of New Jersey, you can have an abortion up to the ninth month. Mm -hmm. 
So let's look at where the consensus is. But it is the law. But 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 I'm just talking about the law. And I had this I I had this argument with someone the other day, like whether it's rare or not, the legislature and the governor in my state has decided it should be permissible. So can I follow up with you? Because you said yes, it could be highly reasonable to have a 20 week ban. At this point, the votes aren't there, as Nikki Haley pointed out in the debate right. stage, to even get that to a president's desk. But should it come to your desk, hypothetically, as a president? <laughs> well, you laugh. This is so critical but for people to know. Excuse me. It's very important for people to know. It sounds like you would sign that legislation. What I would do is I would sign a bill that represented a consensus of the 50 states. So if there was a consensus of the 50 states, and part of the way you would determine that is, could you get 60 votes in the Senate mm-hmm. for it? Mm-hmm. So if there were a consensus, I absolutely would consider signing that. But the issue is, can you develop a consensus that, one, would be developed by those 50 states, and two, would be adopted by 60 United States senators, which almost certainly... It's a key. Right, would almost certainly have to be a bipartisan effort. I don't see either party getting to 60 anytime soon. And so that's what it would have to be. And I think using the states as the founders mm-hmm. intended, mm-hmm. as the laboratory for that... Mm-hmm is the right thing to do. Let's I, let them do it. I appreciate your clarity on that. Can I just ask, uh, I know we have to go, but the idea of, isn't that kind of a, I understand the legislative process quite well right. uh, and the consensus process quite well, but doesn't that allow you to not have to take a firm and specific yeah. position on, like, we'll just see what the states do because I'm not sure yet. No, what I think that I'm not sure. I've said before that I'm pro-life and, and that I believe in exceptions for rape, incest, and life of the mother. And that's the way I governed for eight years as governor of New Jersey and campaigned that way. That's my personal view of it. But now you're asking me, what would you do as president? Um, And right now, a president can't do anything. And so I'm trying to answer the question you asked. Mm -hmm. Uh, You didn't ask me what my personal feeling is um, and where that came from. Someday I'll come back. You can ask me about that. And I'm more than happy to answer because I've been answering it for my entire public life in a very blue state that is very pro-choice. And I had a different opinion. So it wasn't easy to give that answer, but it's the truth. But I think what people need to know is what will you do as president if you're running for president? I want the 50 states to go forward. I don't want the federal government to jump the gun here. Let's let the 50 states make their decisions. Let's look at what the consensus is. And I'd be open to signing something if it represented consensus. Thank you. Thank I you wish guys. we had a lot more time. Appreciate it. I'm happy to. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Well, key inflation report was just released by the Labor Department. We're going to break down those numbers coming up next. In about one hour, the Georgia judge overseeing the election interference case involving former President Trump and 18 co-defendants plans to hold a second hearing. It involves defendants Sidney Powell and Kenneth Chesbrough. Both former Trump lawyers will stand trial together next month after requesting a speedy trial. The judge rejected their request to split their cases. CNN's Zachary Cohen joins us now from Washington, D.C. Zach, what are we watching today for this second hearing? Yeah, Phil, the road to trial for a criminal defendant usually includes trying to get a better look at what built the case against you. And that's what these motions that are going to be discussed today from Powell and Chesbo are really all about. Look, they're really trying to get a better look at the evidence against them and, you know, look at who put the uh, case together. They want to do things like talk to the grand jurors that brought the indictment. They want to unto witness interview transcripts from those who talked to the special grand jury that recommended charges. And they want to know the names 
of the unindicted co-conspirators referenced in the indictment itself. And so these are all part of the legal maneuvering that we typically see as defendants are ready to go to trial. And as you mentioned, Powell and Chesborough are slated now to go to trial on October 23rd. But one overarching question here today, and something we're going to be looking for, is whether or not the judge does address what this means for the other 17 um, co-defendants in this case, including Trump, what the timing of their potential trial might look like. It's likely prosecutors are going to try to get some clarity around that today from the judge as he addresses these motions from Powell and Chesborough. But a lot of moving pieces and really a lot of questions still in the air here, and especially as far as a trial, a potential trial for Donald Trump in Georgia. Yeah, no, every one of these hearings helps put some of those pieces back together or together for the first time. Zach Cohen, you've been the one helping us do all of that. Thank you so much. All right, now for your morning moment. Environmentalist Louis Pugh, you saw him on this program not long ago. Well, he became the first person to swim the entire 315-mile length of the Hudson River unassisted. It took him 30 days to swim from the Adirondacks all the way to Battery Park right here in Manhattan. It was all to promote the need for clean rivers and celebrating the Hudson River's progress. Pugh emerged from the water to crowds of supporters in a tweet announcing his incredible accomplishment he writes, rivers are the arteries of our planet. Everything we hold dear relies on their protection. We spoke to him last month, right before he literally jumped in. It's absolutely essential that we really focus on the health of our planet now. This is the defining issue of our generations. It's a swim, it's a call to people around the world because this is a one river where I can speak to people all around the world because the, the, the river ends in Manhattan right next to the United Nations headquarters. Pew also runs his own environmental organization. He is hoping to fully protect 30% of the world's oceans by 2030. That's a very important topic, um, but I'm bummed he did, he did that because I was totally going to do it. Yeah. And now right. I don't feel like it's not even worth it anymore. I'm so waiting <laughs> for that one, Phil. Um, we are going to continue to watch it just over 15 hours now yeah. until a potential auto strike between the UAW and the big three. Watching that every step of the way. We're going to see you tomorrow. But in the meantime, CNN News Central starts right after this break. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at CNN.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call me country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.